Thanks for taking the time to download this BBC Radio 5 Live podcast. To search for other podcasts you might like, click bbc.co.uk slash 5 Live, where you'll also find our terms of use. All right, Mark. Well, I'm all right. I've just I've been told off by Robin already. The show hadn't even started and I've been told off because we did a trail for the show. And I said we're off next week because I can't because we're in that weird period now between, you know, Christmas and New Year and the thing. And I said we're off, but we're not off next week. Next week, there's a best of the year show. I mean, quite amazing. Astonishingly. And next week will be Friday the what that's i don't know anyway i got it right 30th and then robin said very politely would you mind not saying that we're not we're and then i but we're not coming in to do the best of we're coming in to listen we have to be here to listen to it as it goes out but we're not doing it live we're listening to it live and we have to to be here in case it falls off air and then we have to do entertain i brought a theremin with it i didn't bring it in to do the show i brought it because it's been at the nft and i had to bring it back i've got two theremins in a suitcase outside i can just leave them here and if something happens with the with the thing i can just entertain the crowd with the sound of theremins is it is an nft um is that like an expression on on text or social media i bumped into mark (laughs) nft actually it could be dodgy couldn't it <laughs> it's not called the nft anymore though is it it's now called it's bfi south bank this bfi my, bfi <laughs> my whole life is full of calling things things that they're not called anymore i had noticed that radio five for example apparently not news NF- 24 news 24 apparently not that's right mr young's the screening room hasn't been mr young's for well over a decade now 10 and 6 are not 52 and a half p <laughs> You must call. There must be something that you call by an old name that's no longer a Spangles, Opal uh, Fruit. What, what are they called now? Starburst. Uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, Starburst is Opal Fruit. Yes. Really? Do you know that? No. Well, evidently I didn't know that because otherwise I wouldn't have been astonished when you said it. And do Spangles still exist? I don't know about that actually. And um, minstrels used to be treats. No, I don't remember that. When did they become treats? No there's, idea. There's a there's a there's chocolate bars that have changed their names. Didn't Marathon became something else? Snickers. Snickers, that's right. Snickers, which just sounds disgusting. Anyway. Okay, well, that's that. Yeah, that's that. wellspring. I'll just put the notes aside as if we hadn't practised that. Wassail, 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 as they say around these parts at this time of year. This is our Christmas special. Isn't that a really lovely thing? It's, it is. And your nice. jacket is like a poncettia. It's like having a, a, a Christmas... I'm wearing a Christmas T-shirt as well, which I'll show you later on in the show. Oh, right. Okay. I, from here, that looks like the top of someone's forehead, some white hair brushed back, and a bushy eyebrow. Yeah, so being Christmas, it would be. Uh, it could be Harold Wilson. <laughs> yeah. Is it Harold Macmillan? It is Harold Macmillan. That's right. Yes, it is Harold Macmillan. Bushy hair, you know, hair like snow. Da, da, da. Must be. Da. What they play, did you play that the I other did, day? I did. I did. I did. Isn't it great? This is the Bob Dylan. The Bob Dylan must be Santa. Must be Santa, and it it is fantastic. But one of the things that makes it so fantastic is the fact that it's Bob Dylan. Yeah, if anyone else would go, okay, fine, it's average, but it's just so weird. It still is a weird song. Yeah, but it's really, really good. But it's like that that uh, him doing that and Nick Lowe 
doing the Christmas stuff, which is which is just brilliant. Is the that Bob Rivers and Bob Dylan together? You actually don't need all your Michael Bubbles and all the rest of it. Actually, the um, yeah, that CD, the Nick Lowe Christmas CD, it, hasn't hasn't left the pile. No. Um, of you know stuff you put on all the time since last Christmas. It's just wonderful, isn't it? Absolutely wonderful. Anyway, here's the thing from Anna Wall, which I just want to mention right at this very moment. By the way, if I fall asleep, can you throw something at me? Don't... Am I going to bore you to sleep? No, it's not your fault. It's it'll be entirely my fault because I've had like thirty minutes sleep. Is because my mother's dog has turned up. And it... <laughs> Pardon? This sounds like a Ronnie Corbett story. My mother's dog is the fucking. <laughs> Go on, what? Explain why you barks all night. So basically, I'm the one. Barks that... all night. Hair like snow. Must be. <laughs> <laughs> it must be. Must be my mum's dog. <laughs> so go. On. Now, what's this? So your your mother's yeah, dog has turned up at your house. Yes. So all it means is I may well struggle to stay awake in the latter stages of this. Has program. your mother's dog been keeping you awake? Yeah. Absolutely. How? By yapping and barking all the way through the night. What are you eating? I'm eating one of those um, throaty sweets to... Um... Oh, the ones that you recommend to every Hollywood actor that you meet, as if you're somehow right. on commission. Hey, Sigourney Weaver, try one of these. Try one of these, they're absolutely fabulous. Oh, thank you, Sam, and I certainly will. So did you, when you shouted at your mother's dog to be quiet, yes. did it reward you with a special Christmas present? <laughs> it did. Did you? <laughs> because you... I spoke to it, <laughs> this is like the seventh time, with a certain degree of vindictiveness... <laughs> No, not, that's overstating not, the case. Irritation. I think annoyance. You're not. you're not an animal person, are you? It stored it up deep within its heart, yes. and then as soon as it could, it went upstairs and weed on the bedroom carpet. <laughs> I know how to get him back. Well, hey, check this out. Don't come and shout well, at me tomorrow. I'm sorry, I didn't realise you were doing the dog voice. I thought you went and said, I know how to get him back. I thought you were going to go and weed in his past. <laughs> no, actually, actually, that's quite a good idea. How do you like it? Well, hey! <laughs> Yellow snow, yellow snow, no, yellow, yellow snow. snow. Um, we, and, have, we have to have some, oh, yeah. some Bob Rivers today. We have to have some Bob Rivers. This is a par- this is an album of parody Christmas songs, which I used to play Not a lot. an album. There's four of them. Oh, yeah. four albums. There's four albums. I think of declining interest. No, actually, the most recent one has got um, has got some quite good ones. What's it to you? Is very good. I um, know that. The Buttcracker Suite is very funny. <laughs> I just like the title anyway. <laughs> exactly. Okay, well, maybe. Look, the show is actually bulging at the seams because it's got loads of stuff because at the end of the show, uh, we stop, then we carry on a little bit, and then we're going to do a spoiler-tastic Star Wars. And it's, got, it's called Bob Rivers' Twisted Christmas, the album. That's right. Back on that conversation. No, no, because Robin said in my ear while you were talking, what's the album called? And I was trying to work it into the conversation so it didn't sound like I was answering Robin. Walking but since you've now drawn attention to it, Walking, walking Round in, in Women's, women's underwear. underwear. That was the famous one. Anyway, yes, so we've got a spoiler-heavy Star Wars ender to this particular podcast. Yeah. We will warn you, but there will be... Spoilers. I mean, it's going to be really... It's going to feel really racy and dangerous, reading out things that actually happened. Turn your phone off. Is it a text from... Please tell me it's not a text from my wife. No. <laughs> now, that's the only reason why I leave it on, in case any of your family just wants to get in touch. No, it's not. So, anyway, a long time ago, in a galaxy far, far, far away... away um, Anna, Anna Wall, says, I know in the past you have helped hapless listeners express feelings of romantic love through the medium of flappy-handed marriage proposals and email reading. Ooh. I need your help. But I need you not to propose to or de- declare affection for or otherwise contact in a slightly worrying way a partner or spouse. No, I would be very hugely thankful 
If you could pass on my love and never-ending thanks in a totally non-yucky and very, very non-romantic way to the best friend and flatmate a girl and cinema lover could ask for. Do you know who it is? No. Have a guess who it is. Jason Isaacs. No, it's Laura, obviously. You know Laura. Yeah, do I? No. After a brief period of worrying that nothing was ever going to be all right ever again, I ran away to sea for the best part of a year with a dodgy haircut. Imagine the wigs from the big short... (laughs) And master, and master and Commander combined. <laughs> Not only has Laura forgiven me for this, both the haircut and the boat, but she had made what could have been a rather hard return to university, actually the best term evs. She's already on hand with a, she's always on hand with a cuddle, beverage, cinema trip or combination thereof to suit the situation. Most importantly, though, she took to liking your show more quickly than Mark took to hating Dirty Grandpa. And so entire conversations can be held in our flat on the importance of static images, the death of narrative cinema or our bad selves. And frustratingly, simple answers given to anyone who asks how something is done. <laughs> Starting with, how do you find an affordable wheelchair accessible flat in Norwich? You just find a sort of affordable wheelchair accessible flat in Norwich. While we have spent many great hours this term in the fabulous Cinema City Norwich, the highlight... Which is a great cinema, yeah. ...has to be her choice of Ethel and Ernest. Just the most breathtakingly wonderful 90 minutes I think I have ever spent in a cinema. So I'd be grateful if you could send a massive wass-up from your bad selves to Laura as not to remove any power from Mystic Mark, but she's just about the best reminder that even in the very worst of times, while there are films and friends, everything really will be all right in the end from Anna, uh, a long-term listener from the age of 13, now she's 22, nearly BA honours, UEA, joint winner, Cinema City, Wes Anderson, Dressing Up Night, 2016. <laughs> is that only Corduroy? So can you say, so that is for... Yeah, what's up? For Laura. She sounds like a good mate. That's fantastic, yeah. That's very, very good. On that subject of running off to sea with a dodgy haircut. I didn't know people still ran off to sea. No, I mean, I didn't know it was still possible. It's like joining the circus if things have gone bad for you. <laughs> <laughs> Which would you do? Would you rather run off and join the circus? Or, I always wanted. To I always wanted to be David Essex, um, and in you know that'll be or, you know going off and working on the dodgems. I always thought that was you know if, if everything goes wrong, I can I can get a plaid jacket and work on the dodgems like David Essex. Maybe get an earring as well. No, on that subject of um, uh, uh, bad haircut and going off to sea, when in when I was in Manchester and I was in the middle of my my full uh, Dex's Midnight Runners period. Um, and I had the you know donkey jacket and all the rest of it. And Phil Gladys, no, no, not I never did that. Never did the donkey. No, during the sort of you know the burn it down and uh, breaking down the walls of heartache period, as opposed to the two ray a period. I was never going to do dungarees and jeans turned inside You'd out. You'd be quite good. No, it's not. It, no, you could try that next year. It could be the new look. I'll do it if you do it. Mm. Thought so. And um, so Phil Gladwin, who I used to live with, left a note for somebody which I found, which said, you know, Mark is blah, 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 blah. You can find him. He's dressed as Captain Haddock. And I hadn't realised that apparently what I thought was rocking a Dexys, that apparently I looked like I was running away to see dressed as Captain Haddock. Um, do you remember when we had Felicity Jones on the programme? Of course I do. She was wonderful. She was. This is our Rogue One conversation. She'd been on before because she came on before for... She did. Really lovely that, romance. Really lovely thing. And uh, anyway, she mentioned in the course of that conversation her friend who listens to the show. Oh, yes, that's right. So this has provoked an email from Alex Shawcross in Catford. He's from Catford, in he? A. <laughs> Funny if you remember the some of this. <laughs> Dear Simon and Mark and Edward Shawcross, because that was the name of Felicity's friend. Yes. 
I was listening to your podcast late on Friday evening whilst cooking a large vat of chilli con Christmas, carne, <laughs> recipe on request, for a, for a meal with family and friends the following evening. The production the night before would thus allow greater enjoyment of the guests' company rather than cooking continually in their presence. I was especially keen to hear the podcast, not only as always as a medium to long-term listener, uh, as a medium to long-term listener. Enjoy- as a medium to long-term listener, not as... As a medium to long-term, long-term listener. listener. I mean, obviously that's what it means. Yes. Yeah. But my friend, Felicity Jones, was being interviewed. Felicity's friend who loves the show, Steve. This is Edward Shawcross. But you said Alex Shawcross. Correct, I did. However, to my amazement, it was the mention of Edward Shawcross that made the listen even more memorable. For then, I was torn between excitement, pride, and a tinge of healthy brotherly jealousy at his mention. While I slaved over the final touches for the dinner, for the guests numbered amongst them, none other than the good brother Edward Shawcross himself, although sadly not Felicity. How exciting would that be if Felicity was coming round for dinner? Yeah. At the dinner, we had a special replay of the interview to the delight of Edward Shawcross and other guests, the latter of whom are now converted fans of the show. And I'm sure Edward already has, but an additional thanks to Felicity for saying hello. So if it's not too indulgent to say hello to Edward Shawcross, he had a whole mention on the show from Felicity. Yeah. Hey, we'll do it again. I haven't seen him since last weekend. And a Merry Christmas to Jason. Anyway, we've got Saturday links to do, so we better wrap this bit up okay. because the show is going to be mega with a super big spoilertastic Star Wars conversation at the end of it. Okay. Um, so we're gonna we're gonna we don't want to include the Saturday links as part of the podcast, do we? No, it's boring. No, it's boring. So we won't do that. Let's just not do it then. So yeah, that's right. Let's come in on Christmas Eve just to <laughs> do them <right>. live. <laughs> so shall we? So here's the show. That, that, you, you only said that because Robin literally in my headphones said, "Just say here's the show." Yeah, that was that was like a. Perf- I do what I'm told that was a perfect example of you like being worked with Robin's foot. He says it in there, He's, and it comes out here. And right. which film does that come from? Broadcast News. You rule. How about that? Hey, hey! Happy Christmas, Mark. Happy Christmas, Simon. Nice. <laughs> do you know what I'm going to be doing? Listening to Batman Turner Overdrive. A little bit later. Go on. I'm going to be getting in my car. Yeah. Going up the A1. Yeah. going to be driving, driving home for Christmas. Very good. As a voice over. That was like proper Radio 1. Oh, I can't wait to see those faces. We could just play music, actually. We could just listen. Oh, I like the, this record, actually. It is. It's not bad. No, I like it. Because a lot of people are doing just this. What they want is a couple of hours of top movie chat. If they want this, they've got Steve Wright. Hey. <laughs> Actually, let's, let's see if we can out Steve. Steve, should we do the non-stop oldies? <laughs> um, anyway, but uh, the pieces of music that we're going to play, they're only from Christmas movies. Do you know which Christmas movie this featured in? Well, it's not going to be Plane, Trains and Automobiles, is it? Because it's too that's too far back. It's actually it's not very Christmas. Well, what is it? It's 2010's Locked In, directed by Suri Krishnamama and starring Ben Barnes and Sarah Roma. Straight to DVD. Okay. Okay. But it did feature this, so we can just get away with That's it. That's fine. You got your present, by the way. Really? Yeah. How about that? It's I, a present. I got you a card. Oh, okay. Well, you know, some cards cost more than. Not this one. Not this one. Okay. Is it cheap and tatty? Well, I'll tell you, there's a. There's a thing with that card that I've got you. Thank you. This feels very substantial. Wait, 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 before you open it. Okay. I bought the card, yeah. right? It was only... I bought the card because I thought it was a good card, and I bought cards for, for everyone in, in the... And then, it was only when I got them out to write the thing that I realised that it's not a card. It's a gift token holder. But without a gift token. 
I'm imagining. <laughs> yeah, to sort of accentuate the fact that I haven't got you a gift. But I yeah. did. There you go. So this will be like free then. It is. No, it wasn't free. I bought it. Okay. I bought it, but it was a. I thought it was a card because it was a. You said you liked that film. The best way to spread Christmas cheer is singing loud for all to hear. And but then inside it says that money's nice as well. But I didn't realise that that's what it was. I thought I was buying you a, a you know, a wolf for a elf thing. Yeah. Okay, well, that's that's really nice. Thank you. It's the thought, really. Yeah, that's very Bob Rivers, you know. <laughs> and a coupon for some fries. That was really very thoughtful of you guys. Now, now your present... Nice showbiz uh, tearing of... I saw this. I didn't... Apparently, these are quite well known, but I hadn't seen them before. And as soon as I saw one, I thought, I have to have one of those because I know Mark's going to like it. Okay, all right. Is it a cup? I mean, it's in a cup-sized, cup-shaped uh-huh. box. Bit of polystyrene. Bit of polystyrene. <laughs> so this is a placemat which says, I am silently correcting your grammar. That's right. Is, that, uh, is there more? Yeah. That's the polystyrene thing. Spoiled. If you're on the live stream, you can actually watch this. It's a cup which says, I am silently correcting your grammar. That's right. It's a mug and a cup. And because as soon as I saw, I'm silently correcting your grammar, I thought... Well, I'm going to get that for Mark. The only and th- that should That's stay nice. in our program. That should kit because the only problem with that is you don't do it silently. No, I don't. I, I, do ju- I just correct your grammar. That's that. Thing. Do you want to see my Christmas T-shirt? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that'll be a really nice thing. Okay. Is it a serial killer of some kind? Oh, it's Karl Marx. What does it say under? The- I can't see. Oh, this <laughs> is not Santa. This is not Santa. Bearded not- man. I'm not sure we're allowed to have that because that's clearly a little bit left-wing and biased. <laughs> Have you got have you got someone else's face on the other side just for balance? What that looks like Santa? Yeah. No. Okay. All right. Fair um, so we, this is a slightly unusual program because we're going to do some music and we've got some music from festive films. Some of them chosen by you, the listeners. Some of them chosen by you, the famous person who's going to be on the phone in about fifteen minutes. Who could it be? Uh, who knows? Plus Michael Fassbender. He oh, is, yes. And but he's, he's actually recorded properly as opposed to on the phone. He's recorded properly. And also he's choosing a favourite piece of Christmas music. What do you think his Christmas music will be? You're not going to guess, so I might as well just... Um, except, except your man there, Santa Karl Marx, he might like it. OK. Uh, so is it... Um, You're just going to have to wait. So I'll be home for Christmas. No, it's Saviour's Day by Cliff Richard. Oh, is it? Yeah. Or Daddy's Home. <laughs> that was always one of Karl Marx's favourites, wasn't it? <laughs> he used to... Is it Sing <laughs> Little Birdie? <laughs> 1973. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very Monty good. Python. Vintage Monty Python quoting. Stephen Brennan. Hang on. Merry Christmas to you both. Tis the season to be jolly, and as part of our seasonal celebrations, my wife and I have set up a festive film screening for our church community. We have chosen to show... OK, here are the four. The Grinch, It's Wonderful Life... Arthur Christmas and Muppet Christmas Carol. Two of the screenings have so far taken place and have been very successful. A particular highlight, one of our church families, latterly from Pakistan, had never seen It's a Wonderful Life. Uh, And their youngest child pronounced verdict was, wow, and asked when she could watch it again. Very good. However, as brilliant as these events have been, they have opened a can of worms that I feel only you two and the rest of the church members, I'm a loyal member, I have to say, Uh, At the risk of reopening the crunchy, crispy, crisp debate again, the question stems from what is the difference between a Christmas film and a Christmassy film? Ah, okay, a film which is Christmassy but not a Christmas film. For my part, a Christmassy film would include the four films previously mentioned, as well as many others that tick the boxes of snow, twinkly, light, Santa Claus and so on, and generally leave you with a warm and comforting feeling. Whilst a Christmas film would be a film set 
all or in part at Christmas, Christmas, but without the festiveness. So Die Hard, Lethal Weapon, Iron Man 3, Edward Scissorhands, Jumanji and so on. Or so, Love and Death, the Woody Allen film, which uses the sleigh bell ride, but isn't, isn't actually a Christmas film, although we always played at Christmas. And well, so the debate springs from where films associated with Christmas, but which contain no relevance to the event, sit in the categorisation. So Wizard of Oz is a classic. Well, the, they've mentioned The Great Escape, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, Mary Poppins and the James Bond back catalogue. Yeah. So we considered the option of a third category but it seemed rather inelegant as a solution so we were wondering what you what wisdom you could bring to this and maybe some sense or some frankincense to the proceedings but funnily enough i did a radio program about this many many years ago that may be available on the web sort of about which was on exactly this subject about how some films the great escape being the classic example which is to do with tv screenings how it became a christmas film despite the fact there is nothing christmasy about it at all but that's what everybody thinks wizard of oz is the other great one but wizard of oz happened absolutely because of it being scheduled for television runs at uh, at christmas time um die hard everyone says die hard is a christmas film it's actually set at christmas yippee kaye happy christmas everybody I'm, ver- I'm very glad that's where that sentence went <laughs> yeah so i so, so three categories so christmas films christmassy films and christmas time films as in films that get played at christmas time that you could play at any other time of year as well but love and death for me the woody allen film which doesn't have christmas in it at all but it's got the sleigh bell ride in it and it's a, a, absolutely a christmas film and Casablanca is another one. You always watch Casablanca at Christmas. You always watch It's a Wonderful Life. Always watch Love and Death. Always watch Young Frankenstein. How much time do you have? There's a lot of rapping. I suppose so. Uh, just a quick word from Mel. Box office top ten and then our first mystery guest. Okay. Last December on the show, just before Christmas, you read out my email as I had just been dumped by my boyfriend of nine years and needed help picking a non-festive, non-romantic film selection. You fired a fart gun at my ex. <laughs> and Mark, I think this is where this all started, by the way. And Mark told me repeatedly that it will all be fine and that it had paved a way for a better future. I think all that kind of, it's going to be all right in the end, yeah. started with Mel. Wow. And as always, anyway, Mark was right. It took some time. And I may have listened to that episode whenever I needed to hear those words, but a year on, and I do indeed have a much better future. I'm happier than I could ever have imagined with an amazing job, new friends, and currently starting the process of buying my first house all by myself. I also recently started dating a lovely young man, also called Mark. We met on that there internet dating thing, and after replying to my first message to him about cheese, cheese, (laughs) he wrote, I just read your profile properly. Hello to Jason Isaacs. He then arrived at our first date with a gift for me, a cuddly bing-bong from inside out. Best first date gift ever. Wow. It's still early days, and I don't know what the future holds, but I know having a mention of Wittertainment will make him very excited. So I want to thank both Marks, the good doctor for his kind words of reassurance, getting me through the dark times, and the lovely Mark I'm dating for all the fun and laughter so far. And I now know, no matter what my future holds, everything will be fine. So for all the people writing in recently, needing Mark's words of reassurance. You will be fine. Hold your head high. And if all else fails, fire a fart gun at whatever or whomever has made you sad. That could be the best thing to have for Christmas, actually, yeah. a fart gun. And then when things go bad, you know what to is do. It, our fart gun's gone, hasn't it? Yes, I'm afraid so. In the, um, in the office move at Radio 2, someone stole it. I suspect Kim Bruce has got it. I'll go and have a word. Okay. All right. Box office top 10 at 10 is Bad Santa 2. That's the fart gun. Absolutely. That's what you would need okay. the fart gun for. Now, number nine, It's a Wonderful Life, is back out in cinemas. It's 70 years old this month. You see, I had completely not clocked that. Uh, it's a Wonderful Life is one of my favourites. I watch it all the time, watch it you know, every single Christmas. And I, 
I did a thing recently. I was it was for a, a magazine, and they wanted people to dress up as their favourite Christmas characters, and I dressed up as George Bailey. And believe me, I do not look anything like James. And what Stewart would that at involve? All. Didn't you just wear a suit? Yeah, but they got they sort of sourced a suit. You know, that was kind of. But it's just the thing about it is that that James Stewart is whipped thin. Oh, that's yeah, yeah exactly. That's what you mean. Uh, so loads of, loads of people have been to see it. Mark it's wonderful. says, heartwarming to see it's a, a wonderful life charting this week. It remains the Christmas film against which all other Christmas films will be judged. Be judged. Yeah. There is an element of sentimentality, but that's offset with a truly chilling fantasy sequence that's every ounce as cynical, harsh, and cruel as the main body of the as the main body of the film is optimistic, warm, and gentle. Capra expertly draws us into the heart of a beautifully conceived and realised community before, and we can only watch helplessly as that idyllic world and Jordan. I said, I don't think it's possible to spoil the plot of its wonderful life anymore. Okay. I mean, there can't be anyone who hasn't seen It's a Wonderful Life. I think there are quite a few. Steve, um, drives me nuts. I mean, every year when people think It's a Wonderful Life is uh, twee, and they say it's no, twee. It's not. It's a gut-wrenching portrayal of a man driven to the point of suicide. Exactly. It's a mirror up at a society that is constructed to help the rich and the the rich and the downtrodden to be exploited. It's about how a good person can be driven to a mental breakdown by the stresses imposed by society. Mm. It's not that twee, and it's not the second best Christmas film behind Die Hard. Well, she, 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 she here, Mister 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 Potter. Uh, it's not. It's nothing twee about it at all. It's really, really dark for a huge portion of the film. It's about somebody being driven to the brink of utter despair. Um, Allied is it number eight? <sighs> it's not Casablanca, which we're going to watch, of course, yeah. for Christmas in the long list of films that you have to watch every year. Uh, Arrival is it number seven? We- Stephen Anderson. Uh, this is from our world-beating Facebook page. 56,000 likes and counting, by the way. Uh, I came out of Arrival thinking of it, of its similarity, actually, to It's a Wonderful Life. You spend the majority of the film enjoying the story but not fully absorbed. Then, to your complete surprise, you're overwhelmed by the in the final 20 minutes. I can't remember the last film my wife and I discussed for days afterwards. It's the film of the year for me. I think it's great. I mean, do you think there are kind of a... I, I, it, it had not occurred to me at all, but that is, you know, that that it is a very interesting comparison, and I love both of those films. I, I think the thing that's brilliant about Arrival is that when you see it the second time round, it's a different film. And I can't remember the first time I saw It's a Wonderful Life, so it's always been a film that I've known as I've watched it, so I kind of know where it's going. But I'm always astonished by how dark it is. The only thing I would disagree is I was completely involved with Arrival all the way through the first time. It was just the second time because you know where you know you know the sort of the plot coordinates. It's a it's a, if anything, a richer experience. And how brilliant that Denis Villeneuve, Dennis, as I'd called him until it turned out that that wasn't how he's pronounced, that Denis Villeneuve um, is doing Blade Runner, which we have coming up, I think it's in November of next year, you know, autumn of next year, Blade Runner 2049, which is, on the evidence of Arrival, you know, we're going to get a good Blade Runner sequel. So next... So- Next year, it'll be, I think it's another Star Wars film, and there's a new... Yeah, so the Star Star Wars Episode 7, V11, that's 7, isn't it, is uh, opening in December, and Blade Runner 2049 opens in November. So, uh, and then briefly, Trolls at 6, kind of done that. Mm -hmm. Office Christmas Parties at 5. Oh, dear. Sully, Miracle on the Hudson at 4. There's been so much discussion now about what the the changes that Clint Eastwood... Um, made to the story mean politically that it's almost as if the discussion has gone through the looking glass and come out the other side. And I, I find myself wanting to go, you know, it, in the end, it's a, it's a film about somebody landing, you know, doing an incredible thing, landing a plane on water. 
I do understand exactly why it is that everyone that we you know we wanted to talk about it being a criticism of the health and safety culture and why it was that they were you know the investigating authorities were made to seem quite so inquisitorial but it is important not to lose sight of the fact that there are at least three sections in that film which are just really properly brilliantly constructed cinema there's a lot of it which also which doesn't work and i which is exactly that you know the, the inquisition stuff which doesn't make any sense but for those three sequences it's good and tom hanks is very very good in it. and if you get a chance look at the tom hanks saturday night live sketch in which he plays sully in the sketch getting on an airplane when he's, he's not the captain which is very funny a fantastic beast at number three i liked it I don't think it's classic uh, Potter World stuff, but I think it's really pretty decent. Moana is at number two, which is wonderful, absolutely wonderful. From the you know from the directors of uh, 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 Little Mermaid and uh, Hercules, and just, just a terrific piece of work. I mean, really, really fabulous and and wonderful. And take along your whole family. Wonderful songs, absolute earworm songs, lovely visuals. Just Disney at its best. And the UK's number one is Rogue One, a Star Wars story. And we are going to be discussing Rogue One in plot spoilery detail on the podcast at the end of the show. And we're going to have big warnings saying we are there are going to be plot spoilers in this. But we did actually have a lot of people wrote in say, can you do a plot, a plot spoilery discussion? What was the last film we did that for? Was it, was it, was it Star Force, Wars? Was it Force Awakens? I think so. It, it almost feels like talking in church, doesn't it? It feels like something you really shouldn't do. Yeah, or walking through a street naked. That's what it'll feel like. Okay, the interesting frame of reference. Not yes. <laughs> there. We go. Um, <clears throat> this email is an anonymous email. As a lifelong Star Wars fan of twenty-four years, you can imagine my elation when Rogue One hit the screens and did not fail to impress. Now, imagine you are a twenty-four-year-old lifelong Star Wars fan who actually appeared in Rogue One as a rebel soldier. Words cannot even begin to describe how happy my three short but unmistakably me seconds of screen time have made me. Uh, and at this climactic point in my life, I can see very few things to top the experience. In a show crossover, I would like to beg forgiveness from my fellow IMAX attendees who had to hear me let out a small gasp of excitement when I realised I had not, as I was so sure I would have been, consigned to the cutting room floor. Um, hello to Darth Isaacs. May the force be with you from a rebel soldier wow. who was actually in the movie. Wow. Can you see, I think can you as, see his face? I don't know. He's just said it's obviously him. So as an addendum to the code, do you think it would be acceptable that if you're in the movie, yeah. you're allowed to do a small gasp when you appear? Yeah, I think that's fine, actually. You know, David Bowie is in um, Virgin Soldiers for about three seconds. He walks... In, there's, a, there's a scene in the bar in which he walks from left to right in the background and it's his first screen role because obviously you know he wanted to be an actor and it is fascinating seeing it now once you know it's david bowie so it's entirely possible in the case of this uh this uh, uh emailer that that this is this is the beginning of their of their bowiness um laura stones 20 years old hello new listener of the show so not entirely sure of the correct way to start this email but i thought hello would be the best always works i saw rogue one this afternoon I have to say, I thought it was wonderful. Been trying to avoid any reviews in fear of spoil for fear of spoilers, but I must say, I was not disappointed. From beginning to end, I was captivated. Lovely surprises, hmm. one-liners, brilliantly hilarious. The ending was the best part of all. <laughs> May I just add, being a female myself, says Laura Stones, age twenty. It's so wonderful to see women take a huge role in the film industry, providing wonderful role models for young girls to look up to. 
uh, Ray and Jin, both wonderful, strong characters that I just love. Ten out of ten from me. Tony Hugh in Manchester. I'm writing because I'm baffled by the near universal praise of Rogue One, a Star Wars story. I found it to be a beautifully shot, dressed and costumed disappointment. Each time I settled into the movie, admiring the scale of the Empire and the grittiness of the Rebels, a cameo or unnecessary scene would smash into the film. Via the Valley Uncanny or Asides Unwelcome, I found myself watching the first movie written toward the I'm, uh, written towards the IMDb trivia page. The moments I hear most praised are just carbon copied from the other movies to the point where I feel an opportunity to do something fresh and on a smaller scale with Rogue One was betraying was betrayed by the looming Death Star of franchise obligation. I did like the robot. He was the most believable character. I mean, I I completely disagree. I think that the interesting thing about this film is that because it's a standalone, as they kept telling us, um, it is able to go off in it on its own tangent and to follow its own narrative as it needs to, rather than feeling that you have to marry up all the ends to match up with the next instalment. I mean, it is it is part three and a half, isn't it? It becomes between three and three and four, but it's three point five you know, and 40 degrees north, frankly. I really so, liked it. So that's the box office uh, top ten. You imagine Star Wars is going to be at the top for quite a while. I would think so, yes. It seems to have done very well, but there's a shock. Uh, we'll talk to Michael Fassbender, the other side uh, of the news in sport. It's 2.26. We really can't go any further. I don't think we're allowed to go any further on the programme without saying hello to Jason. Hello to Jason so, Shall we do that? Hello, yes, to, hello to Jason Isaacs. Hello to Jason Isaacs. Hello to you, lovely oh, boys. And a very, very, very pre-Christmas to you. You're kidding me. <laughs> Is that, how, did, how did you suddenly appear in my head? Is so that strange. your actual Jason Isaacs? You sound as though you're not far away. Uh, I'm not too far away. I'm always with you in spirit, as you know, wherever I am in the world. But uh, I'm in London town for I'm the first time this year. I'm just going on the iWitter app. Thanks for the money, by the way. I've been able to have a much better Christmas because of that. Yeah. Oh, look, there you are. I can see you. <laughs> I, get, uh, I get very upset when I go. But I've been in Japan this year and another place, Morocco, where I'm the only person there running iWitter. And I get very upset. I go around grabbing people's phones and subscribing them to the podcast. Can you not do something? Yeah, well, you should just sort of... You are quite militant in that, in that respect. I, everywhere I go... I, first of all, there's, people, there's still people who don't know what podcasts are. But believe me, anybody who leaves their phone for five seconds to go to the loo is automatically subscribed. I so, can do it in about three pushes now. Are you um, back for the festive period? What's happening in the Isaacs household? Uh, uh, right now, we're making Amazon even richer. We're making Jeff Bezos be able to afford that hair transplant he's wanted for so long. Uh, we're sitting clicking money uh, to each other and uh, things will be arriving in the post, hopefully, uh, in order to be unwrapped, wrapped and sent back again. <laughs> You're just sending money to each other? Yeah. We're just, literally, my wife goes, here, click here, that's my present. And I go, OK, fine. And the kids go, I want this, Dad, here it is, click here. And so there's a lot of clicking. It's, uh, it's a lot easier than leaving the house, obviously. It feels slightly less... You know, sentimental and old-fashioned. There we are. Because it being this time of year, Jason was on. You were on television the other day because they showed uh, they showed the Peter Pan, in which you once uh, insisted that you got the role of Captain Hook because the person who was going to be Captain Hook had dropped out. And they needed somebody who was the same size because they'd already made the costume. No, that was Dragonheart. Oh, I beg your pardon. It's absolutely true. There's a, a man, uh, Patrick Malahide, his name is, lovely man who was. Uh, you'll remember him from Minder and a million things since, but that was where I first saw him. Was uh, he dropped out of um, Dragonheart to go and make. Uh, Cutthroat Island with Rennie Harlan because it was guaranteed to be a giant success. Yeah, good call, good and, call. Uh, the first of a long line of pirate movies that you've loved, Mark. Yes. And, um, and they needed somebody who had a 36-inch chest, which uh, sadly is now the size of my stomach, but uh, those days it was the size of my chest. Um, so I got the job. 
Yeah, well, now, look, I, I'm quite excited because there's a whole bunch of new... that You've got this new TV show on... Uh, I do. ...out on Netflix, which we're all very excited. I haven't actually seen it yet, but it, it, everybody's talking about it. They are a buzz about it. I don't, I'm, I'm, I'm loath to use this fabulous Christmas occasion to self-promote, but I, I'm not such a big part in it that I don't feel uh, that I can tell you. I think it's utterly brilliant, and it's Marmite. So about 80% of people who've watched it, and critics, are falling over themselves going, I've never seen anything like it. 10% are not sure, and 10% think it's the worst thing they've ever seen in their life. Want their money back and are storming the barricades. So uh, that's a pretty good... What nobody has said is, what's it called? It's called The OA. It's on Netflix. Uh, what does that stand for? I watch it and you'll find out. I can't tell you. It is all a mystery. They, they did something extraordinary on Netflix. They decided not to publicise it at all. They just put it up because the joy is in discovering where it goes and every time you think you know where it's going, Excellent. it goes somewhere else. So um, enjoy. Don't uh, watch it with your kids. That's all I would say. Okay, okay. <laughs> one of those. All right. You okay. can. Your kids are big. Now, Michael Fassbender is going to be choosing a, a Christmas song a little bit later mm. and we have some other mystery people choosing Christmas songs. But while you're on, Jason, mm. now, the only deal is it has to be involved in a Christmas movie in some respect. That's fine. Well, I... The obvious one to curry favour with my favourite film reviewers would be to go for Old Lang Syne at the end of It's a Wonderful Life, but that's mm. too obvious. Yes, it is. So I'd like to th- a quick swerve left. I'm going to go for Baby It's Cold Outside, as sung by the lovely Zoe de Chanel and um, Will Ferrell and Elf, which unfortunately on the album they don't use Will Ferrell's voice, which is tragic, but nonetheless it's a beautiful song. And when she was a little girl... Her dad was the director of photography on The Patriot, and I used to do magic for the two Deschanel girls, for Zoe and her sister Emily, which they still remember fondly. So somehow I feel a personal connection. You with can do magic, in the words of Lillian. Do magic. I have all those skills that, that uh, kids with no friends develop. I can do origami, magic, skateboarding, dance, anything you can do, wow. practice by yourself. That was the baddest role you ever did. You were the baddest baddie ever in The Patriot. Well, it depends if you think burning people alive is, is poor. It's a moral, you know, it's all this moral relativity, God knows. I mean, anyway, the thing... We got, we, in, we, there are difficult rules about going to late, new, oh, so. late news because you're just playing a song that Jason has picked. Okay. So we have to wrap this up now, Jason, so just back I off. wish you a fantastic 2017. To all the listeners, keep listening and grab other people's phones, subscribe them. You rock, both of you. All right, thanks, Jason. Here's Jason's track. But baby, it's cold outside. I've got to go away. Baby, it's cold outside. This evening has been statutory podcast music interruption. I'm saying this so we can continue playing this music. We are sorry for interrupting this music. Mandatory podcast music interruption. What's your hurry? Be pacing the floor. Listen to that fireplace roll. So really, I'd better. Beautiful, scurry. please don't hurry. Well, maybe just a half a drink more. Put some records on. Statutory podcast music interruption. I'm saying this so we can continue playing this music. We are sorry for interrupting this music. Mandatory podcast music interruption. I wish I knew. To break the spell I'll take your hat Statutory podcast music interruption I'm saying this so we can continue playing this music We are sorry for interrupting this music Mandatory podcast music interruption
hold out, ah, but it's Choice of Jason Isaacs, Baby It's Cold Outside from the soundtrack of Elf. More musical surprises a little bit later on uh, in the programme. And we talk Assassin's Creed. Uh, now let's meet our uh, last guest of the year. We've got a big best of coming up next year, but here's our very big guest who is Michael Fassbender uh, talking Assassin's Creed. We'll talk to him in just a moment after a clip from the movie featuring Michael and Marion Cotillard. What is this? I'm sorry, Carl. This is not the way I like to do things. And don't do it. What do you want from me? Your past. Listen to me carefully, Cal. You're about to enter the animus. What you're about to see, hear, and feel are the memories of someone who's been dead for 500 years. Wait a minute. Synchronization achieved. And that's a clip, of course, from Assassin's Creed. Its star and producer is Michael Fassbender. Hello, Michael. How are you? Hi. Good, thanks. I suppose, and happy Christmas to you. Thank you very much. Happy so, Christmas to you. Um, so I just, just checked back in our show records. Mm. I remembered this anyway. Uh, you've been on the show twice before. That's right. The first time was when you were playing Rochester mm-hmm. Jane Eyre. Then it was Frank. That's right, <laughs> and now, and now Assassin's Creed. In terms of jump from, I mean, the comparison, the comparison of Frank to Assassin's Creed. That's a, that's a, the full, the full panoply of your skills mm. there. Don't you think? I'd actually like to see Frank in an Assassin's <laughs> getup with hood and blades complete. <laughs> so it would be you, difficult though, because with Frank, I couldn't see anything in front of me. I only had periphery vision. <laughs> so, so we pan up to the top of an amazingly tall building, and there's Frank. Frank doing a leap of faith. That's very good. Anyway, so this is an extraordinary uh, film. I enjoyed it very much. Just uh, you've been involved with it for quite some time. Just to explain mm. how you got on board many years ago now. Right. Well, I, I got introduced to the guys from Ubisoft, um, and they they had sort of expressed their desire to make a film of the, this video game. Uh, I'd never played the game. I'd seen posters and trailers on uh, television, so you know there was something quite mysterious and dangerous about it, but that was all I knew. And they sat me down and started to explain this universe to me, and I was immediately intrigued and just drawn into it. I thought it would lend itself very, very well to a cinema experience. The first thing that really struck me was this concept of genetic memory, uh, that within our DNA we have the experience and knowledge of our ancestors, something that we might describe as a, a gut feeling or a sixth sense. Uh, that immediately made me sort of stand up and pay attention because I thought in this fantasy realm, that's a very scientifically plausible thesis. Uh, so that was a good start. And then the idea of, of, of Templars. Who are Templars? They're this sort of group of uh, powerful people in the world. They're the, the elite of society. They basically run the world. And they believe the metropolitan in, elite. That's right. <laughs> and they believe in science and order. And they also believe that some humans are more valuable than others and that some should actually be enslaved. And then their counterpoint uh, to that uh, are the assassins. Um, Their ideology exists around free will. They believe that free will should be protected at all costs and that all humans are equal. So you have these two 
um, rival sort of, well, actually, these two sort of ideologies battling for, for the future of humanity. Which, which makes it a very ancient story because mm. it, go, it goes, you know, if it's about free will, mm. we're back to Adam and Eve, aren't we? That's right. Pretty much straight away. They were the first assassins. Adam and Eve were the first ones that chose free will and plucked the apple. And so we're on their side. It's hard to say which side we're on. Uh, that's also a very interesting part of the, the universe when I was talking to the guys from Ubisoft. It's unlike a lot of films in this genre where you can really sort of pitch your tent with either the good guys or the bad guys. It's very clear, the light and the dark. This is more of a, a murky world. Uh, there's definitely some uh, moral ambiguity here and uh, and. I always thought that was interesting. You might think that, Michael, but actually when we go see the movie, we're all on your side and we're not on Jeremy Irons' side, and that's just the way it is. Okay, good, good. I'm just happy to hear. <laughs> at, so, at some stage, so you're, so you're talking to Ubisoft, they obviously feel very passionate about it, it's their property, mm. it's been enormously successful for them, that's they right. want to make a great movie. But at some stage in your thought process, you must have thought, okay, this is not, in the past, this jump has not been that successful. It's been difficult to make really great movies out of really successful computer games. Mm-hmm. So, how did you go about making sure the mistakes made before didn't happen now? With great ignorance. I mean, <laughs> it, it really is. Uh, it was sort of through naivety. I wasn't aware until. People started telling me that it, there was oh, a curse. So. <laughs> uh, so I was already in it at that point. Uh, yeah, I don't really concern myself with that. I either think it's good or it's not. And I just thought the world was so intriguing. And I thought that, it, like I said, that it would it, it would translate very well to the big screen. I knew that a lot of the um, the fascination with the game was this link to history. And I thought that we could really... Um, explore that very well uh, in terms of doing it as a movie this idea of you know the animus as we talked about this genetic memory okay. well j- just explain um your t- two characters mm. and the animus and how that works right yeah well when we sort of start the film we we get introduced to to callum lynch in present day he's uh on death row about to be executed and sub- subsequently ends up in a place called abstergo run by the templars and in Abstergo, they're basically seeking out trying to find the Apple of Eden, and they're doing that by using a machine called the Animus. And the Animus is kind of like a genetic DeLorean, if you like. It's a sort of genetic <laughs> time machine. And uh, through the DNA makeup of, of Cal, he's able to go back to 1492, where the Apple was last seen or last recorded. Uh, and so his ancestor is Aguilar de Nera. He's, he's able to access that time period through his ancestor. And so that's how we, we, we move to that timeline. When you were just going back in time now to when you were talking about the people from Ubisoft, did you then sit down and play the game so that you thought just to see what this character does and what the whole thing felt, felt like? Absolutely. Uh, first, out of respect to Ubisoft, I, you know, I wanted to, to really see what they had created. Uh, and it was, I think, you know, really 2000 since I really played video games, or 1999 or something. And I was immediately blown away by the sophistication. The graphics have, you know, improved so much. But this world that they had created, you know, the, the, the detail, the precision of how they would cre- recreate a city um, in, in exact sort of, you know, each cornerstone as it was. And also, what was very important for me was to get the understanding of, of the kill poses and the strike poses. Just, ex- just explain what they are. 
Well, um, the the character that uh, that uh, I'm playing in the in the past, uh, Aguilar De Niro, he uses blades. That's his weapon of choice. So he has to get up very close to the mark or the target in order to assassinate it. And um, and that's in the video game. There, there's 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 a very stylistic way of doing that. And parkour is also a, a huge element of the game that we really want. We really love that, and we wanted to bring that into the film. And what is that? It's basically called parkour or free running. It's something that I believe was developed in Paris, um, I'm guessing almost 20 years ago now. And um, yeah, it's it's basically urban gymnastics, I suppose. Is, is a, is I'm now feeling very stupid because my son said, make sure you ask him about parkour. And there we go. And I've completely forgotten. So okay. that's the thing. And, and, but, but that side of it is, uh, is handled fantastically. And maybe people will go and expect to see a very CGI dominated film mm. but it's it's more than that isn't it there's a there's quite a lot of old school filmmaking that you've uh, that you've paid attention to here that's right we wanted to do it old school exactly right uh, there is some CGI elements but that's mainly for Abstergo and in the Animus room uh, in in the timeline in 1492 Spain all of those action sequences pretty much take place in real locations with real people and it is done with with the actors and the stunt men and women and uh, and that was something that was really important to Justin and myself that we do it in this sort of old school manner. We just you know as you said, a lot of these type of films, uh, they're very CGI or special effects saturated, and we wanted to do something different. So the Justin you're talking about is Justin Kurzel, who's, right. who's the director who you worked on, of course, with Macbeth along with Marion Cotillard, who's also uh, in this movie. Was it while you were doing Macbeth that you thought? This is the because obviously you were on board at this stage. You know mm-hmm. you'd be you'd been hooked up by Ubisoft um, a couple of years previously. So did you think he's he's the guy? What was it about him that made you think he was the director? Just the experience we were having on Macbeth. He, him as a he's a very strong visionary as a director. Uh, he's also a very strong leader. He, he communicates very well, not only with the actors. He's exceptional with actors, but also with with the various departments. Um, people are really sort of swept up with his passion. Also, you know, from his previous films, obviously the Snowtown murders and, and then, you know, the experience that we had in Macbeth, I could see that he could do a lot with what he had in terms of money and resources. And also his ability to to really bring a reality to, to anything that he's dealing with. And, and he's a very visceral filmmaker, so I knew the violence would be portrayed well. It obviously feels like the start of something. Hopefully, if people appreciate what we've done and they and they enjoy it and go see it, then for sure we we set off with this story over a, a three film arc. So there is a sort of a journey in mind that we we've got. Uh, and there's lots of you mentioned right at the beginning of our conversation uh, about the leap of faith and the jumping and the stunts, which people will be expecting. I mean, it's the one thing that absolutely has to happen uh, in this movie. That's people right. will be waiting for it. <laughs> yeah. You obviously you had. Uh, you had a stunt double, but you yes. did a lot of leaping yourself, I think. I did some leaping and jumping, uh, some roly-polies and uh, and whatnot. But the the main leap of faith that we've got in the movie, which uh, Damien Walters did. He's your stunt double. That's right. Yeah. He's one of them, yeah. And uh, he's pretty famous on YouTube. He's, uh, he's an exceptional gymnast. So he broke his own record. He, he jumped um, from 120 foot. 
He did a 120-foot leap of faith with no wires, no cords. What's the pose you have to have for the leap of faith? It's kind of like a uh, crucifix position uh, from the jumping position, and then you, you've you got to sort of go like a bird, I guess. So you keep your head up until you tuck it down, and that's when you'll initiate the roll and land st- flat on your back. But at 70 foot, he actually entered the crash mat, or sort of there's a big inflatable sort of... Uh, crash pad uh, sort of heavy on his head so that wasn't great you've got to go f- absolutely flush flat and he said it was like getting hit in the back of the head with a cricket bat so I was a bit concerned that he was going to continue doing it because that was at 70 then he did 90 then he did 100 then he did 110 and he did 120 broke his record what was the biggest one that you did probably 12 foot <laughs> no, um, no I, I, it's hard to say I was we did some stuff uh, in the animus room I guess it would have been at about seven or eight meters but personally i guess i've i've dove from a 10 meter platform in a, at a swimming pool that's the highest dive i've done do you get a break for christmas i do yes how much time do you get what, what would be a perfect fast bend of christmas uh family friends food uh indiana jones which one All uh, of i'll take the first one yeah, the first and the third particularly, I think. Mm. And on and if you could choose a piece, of, in fact, we might play a piece. Sean of music. If you choose a nice piece of music to uh, to play, is there a piece of festive music that uh, you would always that you would always put on? Festive festive music. I'm not a, a, a huge fan of um, Christmas. Maybe come on, ta- you're a, Tannenbaum. You're going an back alter, to you're my German altar roots. You're yeah. an altar boy. Come on, yeah, you could, yeah. Bit of Tannenbaum. Bit of Tannenbaum. Okay. Oh, Christmas tree. Yeah. Okay. But the German version. The German version. <laughs> if that's what Michael Fassbender wants, that's what Michael Fassbender gets. Michael, thank you very much indeed, and happy Christmas. Thank you. you so much, Simon. Oh, Tannenbaum, oh, Tannenbaum, wie treu sind deine Blätter. Oh, Tannenbaum, oh, Tannenbaum, wie treu sind deine Blätter. Du grünst nicht nur zur Sommerszeit, Nein, auch im Winter, wenn es schneit. O Tannenbaum, o Tannenbaum, wie treu sind deine Blätter. Now, you might think that that was taken from Now That's What I Call Christmas, <laughs> volume six there between Wizard and Elton John. But actually, it's from the film A Midnight Clear, which came out in 1992. Actually, and it's quite a good scene film. in which German and American soldiers in World War II cease hostilities and exchange gifts around a Christmas tree decorated by the German troops, starring Peter Berg, Kevin Dillon, Ethan Hawke and Gary Sinise. Mm. It's a good little film. Uh, it was a little bit of a raucous version of Otanenbaum, but uh, and and that tune somehow sparked something in your soul. <laughs> not quite sure why, anyway. So uh, more of your uh, Christmas uh, music selected in the next hour. But anyway, so Assassin's Creed, this is going to be very big news, I think, as I said to Michael, I haven't played the game once, but I enjoyed the movie. What did you think? Well, I'm in an interesting position because I haven't played the game, but I've had a lot of it on in my house because, like you, I have a, a son who, you know, did a, played an awful lot of Assassin's Creed. And the thing that always struck me is how much history they were getting out of it because they were, you know, the different periods. And, and, and there is an awful lot. There's a lot of history in this thing. However, as Michael Fassbender said in that interview, although he said he wasn't conscious of it, 
computer games don't have a good track record of you know going to movies. So if you look at things like um, you know whether you start with Super Mario and Mortal Kombat and Tomb Raider, all of which were a bit rubbish, and then Resident Evil, Super Mario particularly, Super Mario was particularly pants, wasn't it? Yeah, Resident Evil, long lasting but not great. More recently, you know, Max Payne was noisy and annoyed me. Hitman's a bit rubbish. Silent Hill was one of the ones that was sort of at the better end. Um, but I liked Duncan Jones's adaptation of Warcraft, which a lot of people didn't, um, and I actually ended up seeing it twice, and I liked it even more the second time round. And the thing I liked about it was that, firstly, I think that he's a filmmaker, and secondly, I think that it showed a respect for the source material. And I kind of feel the same way about Assassin's Creed, although I understand that it's not, it's, you know, not winning everybody over. I mean, already there are some reviews by uh, gamers who are not thrilled by certain elements of it. In that interview, I thought it was very interesting that uh, Michael Fassbender talked about doing something out of respect to Ubisoft, which was a very interesting phrase to use because it's not the kind of phrase that you would usually hear somebody do it. And he was saying, yeah, I wanted to get into the world because they'd done all this stuff and they'd created all this stuff. And I think he was genuinely impressed by the source material. I say once again, I haven't played the source material. I've just watched the source material being played quite a lot. The fact that he was talking about the kill poses and the strike poses, the fact that he was very, very keen to get the parkour, which is in the the video game, which again, because you you will have seen it on in your house. I know you haven't played it, but you've seen it being played. And the fact that they've done physical action sequences, which you referred to in that interview, although bizarrely, the film does still have a computer game feel to it, Although, but that's not a negative thing, because when they're doing the leaping and the jumping and the pogging, no matter how physical it may or may not be, it... What worked about it is it has the same sense of what those sequences look like when you're watching the computer game, which is actually owes something to the wire work of uh, martial arts movies that we sort of saw revived with things like, you know, Crouching Tiger. That is, a, there is a whole kind of cinematic tradition from that. So Assassin's Creed, the computer game, is drawing on a cinematic tradition, which is then feeding back into cinema as a result of, of this adaptation. Um he was also saying that his director, Justin Kurzel or Kurzel, I'm not sure how you, as Jason has often pointed out, I can never pronounce anybody's name right. He said, you know, strong visionary leader. And I, my feeling was with Macbeth that the, the, the adaptation of Macbeth was somewhat insubstantial and was an awful lot of style over substance. In the case of this, I actually think it works better as you know, as a film, I think all of the, the, the stuff that's in the past, all the stuff when they're in the Assassin's Creed world, all the stuff that's in the, the historical part of it works really well. The difficulty for some people is the latter day stuff in which you're, we're in the, the, the present day and there's this whole sort of thing about getting into the genetic memory and essentially casting back to the past characters. Now, as far as I understand and from what I remember of watching the game, in the computer game, um, that's just that you, I think you just go to, you know, you lie down. And here what they've tried to do is that they've they've tried to animate that, that they've given him uh, this kind of arm that he's attached to. So whilst he's doing the running, jumping, fighting in the past, he's doing a sort of strange mimed version of it in the present. And actually at times the movie flips between the two of them. And it's clearly an invention in order to make the thing cinematic. But the general feeling seems to be, even people who like the past world stuff aren't crazy about the present world stuff. They think that's the stuff that doesn't work. And it was interesting when you were talking about Jeremy Irons and, you know, Michael Fassbender saying, well, there's a question about, you know, who's good. I don't, and I've heard him say this elsewhere. I really don't think there is any doubt. Jeremy Irons walks on with that Jeremy Irons face on. You go, bad guy. Because no, because that's what they, Jeremy Irons has literally got his bad guy face yes, on. There is something, <laughs> I think the word is squalid. 
Squalid. Yes, there's something squalid about Jeremy Irons. He, loose. You mean when he's on on yeah, screen? No, yeah, no, 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 exactly. I just sort of to clarify. So on, you go. No, I don't think I'm going to be on your side. Which is interesting because he's played a number of actually very very sympathetic roles, but he is very good. He's at still doing Mufasa. That. <laughs> yeah, but no, but he's also you know he's also the guy from Dead Ringers, and of course there's that brilliant moment in High Rise when you realise that he's the architect, and you go, oh, okay, fine, that's where we are. So I thought that that attempt to make the connection between the different time zones by doing that kind of physicality stuff, I didn't have a problem with it. I thought that it made sense in terms of taking something as that's you know that's a, a very very advanced and complicated uh, computer game and turning it into a into a cinematic experience. I th- I could understand why and I it did it didn't bother me that much. I know that a lot of people aren't fans of it. Certainly, people who are fans of the game think that it's it's a distraction and that what you actually want to be doing is spending the time because, because when you're in the game, actually what you're doing is you are spending time in the past world. But it seemed to me that in terms of computer game adaptations, it was made by people who took the source material seriously, which in it, in and of itself is fairly remarkable. I mean, it's often been said that, you know, I don't, I'm not an appreciator of computer games. This is absolutely not true. I don't play them and I don't understand them, but I do understand that they can be absolutely brilliant and I think that if you're adapting anything, you should have respect for the source material. And whether you like the film of Assassin's Creed or not, I think it has respect for the source material. As somebody whose entire experience of the game, as I said, is not playing but watching it being played, I thought that watching the film, I thought as a piece of cinema, it was exciting and uh, you know engaging. And I thought that the, it moved in a way that, seemed to me to be in keeping with the tone of the source game. I thought it was one of the better computer game adaptations and I think I'm going to go see it again. Would you have rather it all stayed in the past? <sighs> you know, it didn't bother me that it that, that 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 the future stuff that the present stuff was there. That did not bother me. Uh, we have some uh, reviews of this which is uh, surprising really because it's not out for a while because this is a New Year's Day release. You know, we're we're a representative sample. Yes. You know, so that if we sort of agree about a film, it is probably thus. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I just wonder whether Assassin's Creed is going to be one of those movies, particularly where uh, you will get out of it what you take to it, which is this theory which you've discussed many times before. But you and I, neither of us have played Assassin's Creed. Both went to the movie, actually quite enjoyed it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I might... if, but the people who are hardcore, the people who, are, who in, have invested so much time, in fact days, weeks and years playing the game, they're the people that are going to go, well, I'm not sure that's going to work. My son said to me, did you see Assassin's Creed? I went, yeah. He said, what do you think? I said, oh, I rather liked it. He went, oh, okay, because... And then he named another critic who's an online critic, who's actually very good, who I'm not going to name because why should I give publicity to him? Because he's actually quite quite good. He went, he didn't like it at all. And and, and, And he didn't like this about it. And from my son's point of view, that other guy is probably right. But I said, no, you should go and see it because I think, you know, I think you'd like it. But then again, I was the guy, I thought he'd like Warcraft... And um, I mean, I there was that very strange experience with Warcraft when uh, I was sort of flying the flag for it, and I thought that what would happen was that you know that there would be this kind of groundswell of, of fan love for it, but it hasn't quite happened yet. I still think it's going to. I still think, and I you know I, this is going to be a little bit like Transcendence, isn't it? When I said you wait a few years time, Transcendence, everyone's going to be saying it's mm. great. The tide is turning, but very slowly. I think in a few years' time, people will look back at, at uh, Warcraft and think it was a much better movie than people gave it credit for. Uh, Liam Smith on an email, I happen to be a massive fan of the games. This is Assassin's Creed, okay. obviously. And in the games, the whole present-day parts were always the dull and boring bits. 
The games always focused on the action-packed yeah, past, past yeah. of the unsuspecting bartender. Uh, I can't wait for this film to drop. Well, it may well be that you, like others, will find that the historical sections to be more uh, rewarding and satisfying. Yeah, I mean that's the that's the meat and potatoes of the you know of the game. Matthew Jones, uh, County Westmeath in Ireland. Ever since the supremely chilling Snow Town debuted in two thousand and eleven. Justin Kurzel, Kazel Kurzel, uh, emerged <laughs> as a filmmaker to keep on one's radar. Thus, when I won tickets to the Irish premiere of Assassin's Creed, I leapt at oh, the wow. opportunity, eager to see what the Aussie auteur... I can hear a really big butt coming in ...would his bring to Ubisoft's most successful creation. But... But... Or alas... <laughs> Nobody uses that word anymore, and we really should bring it back. Alas, what a terrible film this is. Even by the considerably low standards of video game movies, Kurzel's latest is a serious misstep. The film tells a story that never engages or invokes, but instead confuses and frustrates with its plodding pace and never-ending stream of tedious exposition. Clunky characterization weighs it down further, epitomised by Michael Fassbender's um, uh, protagonist and his undernourished familial arc. It could have been an entertaining actioner but when the narrative baffles and the characters are non-existent, the action sequences are reduced to little more than empty spectacle. OK. I don't think Matthew liked it very much. But you've seen it as well. Do, do, you, do you share any of those criticisms? Well, I... I you enjoyed it, right? Yes, well, I, did, I absolutely did enjoy it, which is why I, mean, I don't always say in the interview to, to the star that we're talking to that I really enjoyed the film but yeah. I did I had absolutely no expect you know no expectation could have been absolutely horrendous I enjoyed it I thought it was a very visceral movie exactly as Michael Fassbender was talking about didn't, t- didn't tell Charlie Kaufman how much you enjoyed Anomalisa did you I didn't <laughs> know I need to spool that back and just check I don't think so but I, I think it's probably right the historical stuff is is good that's the stuff without squalid Jeremy um <laughs> And all that. So, I, yeah, the old-fashioned stuff is, is, is the best stuff. Matthew Jones finishes by saying, despite the kicking uh, it got this past summer, apart from Mark, at least Duncan Jones' Warcraft featured empathetic characters and resonant themes, which made me emotionally invested during the big set pieces. Yeah. Conversely, the vast majority of Assassin's Creed, I found myself simply looking at the screen. Okay. I mean, I'm glad. I'm glad that you liked, therefore, comparatively liked uh, Warcraft. I re- I really did like Warcraft, and I agree. I think you do. You really do care about the characters in that film, which was the real triumph of it. Frankly, uh, time for some more Christmas music. This is not just any old Christmas music. <laughs> oh no, it's Christmas movie music chosen by Wittertainies, Neil Graham, and Jimmy Fletcher. This is via our Facebook page uh, from Die Hard. Just a little bit of Run DMC and Christmas in Hollis. Think you might like this. Statutory podcast music interruption. I'm saying this so we can continue playing this music. We are sorry for interrupting this music. Mandatory podcast music interruption.
statutory podcast music interruption. I'm saying this so we can continue playing this music. We are sorry for interrupting this music. Mandatory podcast music interruption. Macaroni and cheese, and Santa put gifts under Christmas trees. Decorate the house with lights at night. Snows on the ground, snow white so bright. In the fireplace is the Yule log. Beneath the mistletoe as we drink eggnog. The Yule log eggnog. There's really nothing else that rhymes with that. Uh, Christmas in Hollis. Run DMC from Die Hard. Uh, the scene. Nice. It's as played by a limousine driver, Argyle. He's driving John McClane to Nakatomi. Plaza. Yeah, when he's sitting in the. Does he play it in the driver? Does he play it when he's sitting in the uh, in the car underneath? Because the whole gag is that he's in the car underneath the thing when it's all sort of playing out. Anyway, it's played by limousine driver Argyle while he Sorry. drives. Okay, John fine. Okay, 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 okay. Yippee ki yay! Melon farmer. Melon farmer. Anyway, uh, we'll do some some more. We've got a, a live guest choosing a favourite festive tune. Have we? Oh, great. Uh, very shortly. And you don't tell me anything. Uh, Mayo at BBC.co.uk. What else we got? If we're not going to see Assassin's Creed, what else can we do? Passengers, um, which I think is out today. A lot of stuff that we're, that we're reviewing is out uh, uh, um, on Boxing Day or <clears throat> New Year's Day. Um, but so this is out today. So this is uh, directed by uh, Morton Tilden, who made uh, Headhunters and... The Imitation Game, both which I quite liked, and written by John Spates, I think it's pronounced. Um, a script that was been around for a long time at one point was on the blacklist of you know greatest unproduced screenplays, and nearly went into production. I think at one point with Keanu Reeves. Um, now arrives uh, with Chris Pratt and uh, Jennifer Lawrence. So the story is, in the future. Earthlings are making their way to new planets to start new lives. Okay, uh, the planets are a very the place that they're going to is very very long way away. This is kind of like a Blade Blade Runner, you know, off world colony thing. Um, like it takes a century to get there. So in order to get to where you're going, uh, you have to go into uh, in, into into hibernation, into uh, cyber sleep, whatever they call it, uh, which is something that we see you know a lot in movies, whether it's Alien or 2001. So this ship is making its way through its something like a hundred year voyage and en route it runs into a meteor storm asteroid i think now they're asteroids when they're in space they're meteors when they come down is that right hmm thank you for clearing that up and uh one of these right. one of these big rocky things floating around in space uh, you know they, d- does some damage and the next thing one of the sleeping pods opens up and chris pratt who's jim preston who is an engineer wakes up and he wakes up and the ship says, hello, you know, blah, blah, we're nearing the place that we're going to. And he starts wandering around. He suddenly realises that he's the only person on the ship. And he, the only other person on the ship is a robot barman played by Michael Sheen doing his very, very best robot barman. And he starts to, re- in, in the bar, incidentally, which looks like it's modelled on the Overlook Hotel from Stanley Kubrick's The Shining, it's kind of this great big and cavernous and creepy and distinctly empty. And he starts to realise... That there's nothing, he's got 90 years to go on the ship and he's on his own and there's nothing he can do. And so he starts to go quietly mad. And at some point in his quiet madness, he decides he's going to have to wake somebody up because he needs company. And through going through the ship's logs, he basically falls in love with Jennifer Jennifer Lawrence's character. And without telling her that this is what he did, he causes her pod to wake her up. So in doing something to give himself a companion, he has basically condemned her to the same fate that he, to which he is condemned. Crucially, he doesn't tell her that's the case, and she doesn't know. She actually thinks he's quite a decent companion. 
You have a visitor. Wow. You clean up pretty good yourself. You went shopping. I went shoplifting. <laughs> you two look fine this evening. We're on a date. Very nice. Took you long enough to ask. I was giving you space. Oh, space. The one thing I do not need more of. Now, we wrestle with which clip to use, whether to use that clip or whether to use the one in which he discovers that he's in space on his own for 90 years, because actually one of the things about the film is it has very, very different tonal shifts. There is, during that opening sequence, when he realises that he's on his own and he will die up in space because he's not going to, you know, he's, you know he's, by the time he gets to the planet, he's going to be 100 years old. Um, and there's that brief moment of, OK, well, I can do anything I want so I can use all the sports facilities. I can, you know, do all the, I can do all that stuff. And then suddenly the terrible horror of being alone on a spaceship with only a robot companion, which obviously draws comparison with Silent Running, uh, Doug Trumbull's film, which is one of my favourite movies of all time. As I said, there's also there is definitely a comparison with the, with the Overlook and uh, and Stanley Kubrick. And in its wildest dreams, I think the film is also edging towards Solaris, probably the Steven Soderbergh Solaris as opposed to the original Solaris. And it's had pretty sniffy reviews. And what the thing that most of the reviews seem to take issue with is that the film isn't able to deal with the seriousness of the crime committed, of waking somebody up in order to give yourself a companion. Although actually that's not true because when I went to see the film, just before I went in, somebody said to me, you're sharpening up your knife. And I went, why? Because I hadn't read anything. You haven't seen the reviews. I went, no, I haven't read anything about it at all. <laughs> okay, fine. So it may be that I was slightly primed for but actually I enjoyed it more than I thought it was going to. I mean, it's preposterous nonsense. It makes no sense whatsoever. If he's woken up, you know, all this way away from where they're meant to be, why do all the ship, the whole, the whole of the rest of the ship behave as if his presence is completely, why, why isn't the whole ship in hibernation? It makes no sense at all. That said, once you've accepted that it makes no sense, and that its, its its essential setup is completely preposterous and abstract, and it starts to be quite enjoyable. Um, and actually, I think that it does wrestle, or at least tussle, with the idea. Is that like a mild wrestle? It's like a mild wrestle. Tussle with the idea that the, that the central character has done something really, really creepy. In fact, what he's done is referred to at one point as murder. It's, you know, you've stolen this life. In order to give yourself a companion, you have essentially stolen somebody else's life. And the story then is about, you know, how how people can or can't work out the rest of their, you know, everything else, having understood that there are only two people on this ship and one of them you hate. And, you know, one of them, because you've done something, you've done something absolutely terrible, unless, of course, she doesn't find out, which is his whole point about not telling at the beginning. So there are those things going on as undercurrents. It doesn't have any great depth. It's all to do with surface. It has the worst music choice I think I have ever encountered uh, towards the end of the film. And it it looks like silly, glossy, problematic nonsense that 
you could take against if you felt that what it was doing was just being utterly frivolous with its central conceit, because the central conceit is so creepy. The central conceit is so, you know, there is something really, really creepy about it. But I actually think that the movie has a sense of that creepiness. I think the movie does have a sense of that what he's done is completely unforgivably wrong. And although there is no great depth beyond that understanding i think the movie then toys with as i said tussles with rather than properly wrestles with or grapples with i mean a bet you know a different director would have made a very different movie this is froth this is cappuccino froth this is the the fizz on the top of a glass of you know prosecco since we're at christmas um and it has no substance and no weight but i enjoyed it and i went to see it with simon from our production team and i think Simon felt the same thing. We don't care what he thinks. No, no, but I because it was weird because I had expected to not because I'd heard you know the bad thing just before I went in, and I think we both thought you know what that was kind of fun. I mean, daft fun, but fun. Toby says, um, firstly, Passages is simply the latest contribution to the burgeoning genre of trapped in space movies. And <laughs> in the end, it felt like a now that's what I call a space movie compilation. Now that's what I call trapped in space. Any of the originality and gravity of predecessors. Yeah, no, it has no gravity at all. Throughout, I was thinking of the loneliness of Moon, special effects of Interstellar, yep. plant life of Martian, and scale of gravity. Well, plant life, incidentally, of Silent Running, which it, which it definitely lifts from. Enough about Silent Running, says Toby. Okay. He doesn't really. Uh, which had all tackled specific elements in the story. On top of that, there are cool design elements of uh, Ex Machina and a very obvious... Mm, mm, better not say that. Which left the film with no clear identity, except, of course, for actually being a complex love story. Secondly, I found, uh, and the good lady here indoors, we were both big J. Lauren C. Pratt fans and agreed that with lesser actors, this film would be... Would have fallen flat on its face. Completely tanking. Yeah. We also tended to disagree with other reviewers about the creepiness of the setup because we felt it handled the isolation of Jim well. There, thank you. So there we go. There we go. There you go indeed. There we go. Peter in Dublin. Uh, Passengers is a sci-fi thriller romance that is neither thrilling nor romantic. romantic. I expected there, um, <clears throat> there to be at least some sort of commentary on our growing reliance on technology, but I was wrong. The story could have been made for a good episode of Black Mirror, but it has such an awful, predictable screenplay. Totally mediocre, just about passably entertaining due to its charming leads. Uh, Toby Simons. Went to see Passengers this week with the high hopes that only a great cast and solid director can inspire. The film had so much to offer on paper... Uh, that the bland, creepy and clichéd final product was a huge pedestrian disappointment. Sheen was wasted, Fishburne in the role of plot advancer undersold, and Jennifer Lawrence gratuitously reduced. Essentially, uh, a film in which Chris Pratt spends over two years trying to go back to sleep. If he just watched the film itself on Badum, Waking... and indeed Managed it tish. under two hours. Genuinely... And I, 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 would, I would just like to say that more than one reviewer has alighted upon that very same gag. OK. Fair enough. But anyway, no, no, I, let, yeah, let's sure. assume that Toby came up with it. No, no, I'm not. No, I, I'm not saying it was. What I'm saying is it's it's one of the things that the film presents itself, you know, f, t, for you to make that gag. I'm not saying that they got it from somewhere else. I'm saying that more than one person has made that same jump because the film appears to offer it. Mark in South Lincolnshire, uh, LTL and aerospace design engineer. Uh, I saw Passengers yesterday evening at the Best Price Majestic Cinema in Kings Lynn. And I have similar feelings to the film I had 
when I saw Gravity. I was really looking forward to the film for the last few months, then swept away by the impressive spectacle whilst in the cinema. But as soon as the credits finished, the science and engineering errors came to the fore. Well, errors is a kind word for what the, what the things are. Especially regarding the gravity. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Turn it on, turn it off again, turn it on, turn it off again. You go, but hang about a minute, it's to do with spinning. However, in the quieter or romantic slash creepy sections of the film, <clears throat> it was its sexual politics that concerned me and afterwards overtook the technical faults to be its biggest failing. And of course, because the trailers skirt over the whole... Hmm. You think, yeah. Mm-hmm. This makes it quite tricky to talk about, spoiler-wise. Oh, no, but everybody knows what... But fun. Anyway, I do think that the filmmakers missed a trick and the film would have been more interesting if the genders of the two main characters had, had been, been reversed. reversed. But sad to say, would Sony have then spent $100 million on it? It would have been even more groundbreaking if it had been two men or two women. Oh, well, different universe. Eh? Or if it had been silent running when it's just Bruce Dern. Anyway, Mark, thank you very much indeed for the email. Uh, you can get in touch, may at bbc.co.uk. Uh, we should do some more hellos because we were saying uh, hello to Jason earlier. Okay. Um, so we should, should say hello to Stephen Fry. Uh, hello to Michael Sheen, who was just in that film. Hello to uh, all various members of Fairport Convention. And uh, we should say hello to Amara Santi. Hello, Amara. Hello. Oh, Happy Christmas. Oh, it's another trick played by our Christmas grotto <laughs> elf man. <laughs> How are you both? Well, we're okay. I'm imagining you're in somewhere really exotic and fabulous and it's like 38 degrees. I'm in exotic Denmark, sitting by a roaring fire at my parents-in-law's. Is that a little bit of hygge? A little bit. Because there are, have you seen the, the number of Hooger books? Hooger is everywhere, and I, yeah, I don't understand that. Do they actually? And is it a big thing in Denmark, or is it just the Brits talking about Hooger in Denmark? I think it's big enough here. I'm, I haven't partaken in any way, but yeah, I think it's big enough here. I think the Brits is probably bigger for the Brits. Emma, did you experience Hooger in the the lovely Isle of Man, where you were filming uh, Where Hands Touch? Did. No, I was on a schedule from hell, let me tell you. Um, fighting the daylight like there's nobody's business because it's kind of half-day daylight, as you know, at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was just—I was happy to be there, as always, and, and happy to come back with the second film. Is it all finished? Are you done? I'm so done. I am so done. It's in the can. It's like I've um, been a goal for over a decade, and it's now in the can. And, and uh, you're going to you you're going to edit it. For how how long is that going to take? But um, I won't be delivering till the summer, around about July. So when will we see it, Emma? To two eighteen, probably around the beginning of two eighteen. Wow! So a whole yeah. year, a whole year away. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I did three films in four years, and then the, the final one will be the one that takes a while to come out. I think. And how do you, uh, we're just, you know, a few weeks away from United Kingdom having opened and, uh, as far as I could see, universally acclaimed as a, a jolly good thing. Made my top ten of the year. Made my top Thank ten you of the year. so much. Obviously Thank made you. Mark's top ten of the year, which is the Great. ultimate uh, accolade. And how, how, how do you see it now, Emma? I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm relieved. Um, it was another challenging film to make. You know, as I've said to you guys before, two countries, two continents, a lot of love story and a lot of politics to try and squeeze into one hour, 50 minutes. I'm just so happy that everybody's responded so well to it. And uh, a Danish Christmas, how's, what's that going to be like, assuming you're still going to be there? Kind of, sort of. I mean, the Danes celebrate uh, Christmas on Christmas Eve, 
Um, so we're having a slightly early one here, and then I'm I'm skidding over back to London to have Christmas with my mum. So we try and split our Christmas if we can, have a little bit here in Denmark, and then um, and be with mum if possible for Christmas Day. So yeah. And would you find yourself in front of a? Uh, a DVD or watching something on the TV? Do you like a good movie, Emma, or would you think, no, that's just like work and I'd rather No, actually, to I do, I do, but I have to say that we're coming up to both BAFTA and Academy voting time, so we've got lots and lots of screeners to watch, and of course, with a, a United Kingdom and everything I had to do with that, and then going straight into production again afterwards, I haven't watched movies for ages, so I'm so looking forward to sitting down and just doing back-to-back binging of all the movies I should have seen, but haven't had a chance to yet. So uh, Michael Fassbender was early uh, on earlier talking Assassin's Creed and he chose O'Tannenbaum, a little bit of uh, his Germanic Christmas roots. Yeah. What Christmas movie music are you going to choose? Well, that Jason Isaacs. He yeah. went and picked the movie that I wanted to pick um, and that I love. He always does that. He always does that. He does that. He does that. We have very similar taste. I'm going to go for Elf also and the song that I'm going for is Eartha Kitt's Santa Baby. Excellent. Um, Emma, always nice talking to you. Thank you very much indeed. And we look forward to talking about your new projects next year. Or uh, Thank you so yeah, much. Happy Christmas to you both. Happy and Christmas, to all of Emma. The listeners and a happy 217. And all of Shetland says happy Christmas to you as well. Oh, happy Christmas to all of you back. I can't wait to come back. Emma, thanks very much indeed. Um, uh, the, the track that you want... Santa Baby. Santa Baby. Kit. As she said earlier yeah, on, I know, when you I, weren't listening. I had Robin talking in my head. You know, for an extra five quid, they could have got Steve Wright to do this. OK, all right. Stop that. Emma, what was the track you wanted again? It's Santa <laughs> Baby by Eartha Kitt. All right, OK. We'll play some Eartha Kitt. Thanks, Emma. Have a happy Christmas to you. Thank you to you too. Bye-bye. <laughs> Santa baby, just slip a sable under the tree for me. Been an awful good girl. Statutory podcast music interruption. I'm saying this so we can continue playing this music. We are sorry for interrupting this music. Mandatory podcast music interruption. Santa baby, a 54 convertible to light blue. I'll wait up for you, dear Santa baby So hurry down the chimney tonight Statutory podcast music interruption I'm saying this so we can continue playing this music We are sorry for interrupting this music Mandatory podcast music interruption Of all the fellas that I haven't kissed Next year I could be just as good if you check off my Christmas list. Santa baby, I want a yacht and real Statutory podcast music interruption. I'm saying this so we can continue playing this music. We are sorry for interrupting this music. Mandatory podcast music interruption. A little bit of Earth Kit as chosen by Amara Santi. 
for our special Christmas show, uh, Michael Fassbender. And we still have a, a top guest before we finish with, uh, and some more of your choices uh, as well, choosing some good Christmas music from Christmas movies uh, that we have loved so much. In fact, in some cases, have never heard of, but it's just a good excuse to get the track on. I'll just say, I can, I can hear the cheese in your voice as you say that sort of thing. We get the Christmas movies from movies we have loved. Okay. I don't know quite how to take that. Well, uh, badly. Okay, I'll take it badly. <laughs> TV movie of the fortnight. The fortnight. This time next week we're doing a best but it of could special. Be, but it could be of the week because... I don't know, because what? Because it's always oh, something out this week and not out next week. Mark Taylor. It'll either be Saving Mr. Banks because of the magnificence of Emma Thompson, plus the Mary Poppins connection, or the wonderful Pride because you can't keep an old trot down. Both premieres, both on BBC Two, both on at a time that people may actually watch, watch them. Paul Green says, obviously, Mark would go for Sex and the City 2 as he got so excited about reviewing it. In the minute possibility, he won't. He will choose the excellent Pride or Duke of Burgundy. Andy Duke of Burgundy Elms. is fabulous. Mark will probably choose Saving Mr Banks because it's practically the perfect film for him in every way. I'll be watching Ethel and Ernest, second mention of that today. And if deemed suitable, probably have it on hard rotation for my son, who is a big fan of Raymond Briggs. Claire Anderson, what a list. Uh, I most certainly will not be choosing E.T. as it scared the life out of me as a child. Really? Continues to do so to this day. Oh. I'd choose It's a Wonderful Life as I think the world could uh, use some cheer. Mark will choose Saving Mr. Banks because of Emma. And Simon will choose Muppet Christmas. (laughs) The way you said that was because of (coughs) Emma. Excuse me. And Richard Norton. My pick would be Raiders of the Lost Ark as it feels like a Christmas movie, even though there is no Christmas in it, which goes back to our earlier conversation. It's also one of the best examples of a great adventure film and really shows how exciting movies can be. Simon will pick either E.T. and Mark will then go for Saving Mr. Banks anyway. What is our TV movie of the fortnight? Are we we both choosing? Because you said you will pick something. So are you going to choose one and I'm going to choose one? Well, I better better choose one now, haven't I? Yeah. Shall I go while you're choosing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so... I mean, clearly saving Mr. Banks. There's an awful lot of Emma Thompson on television this Christmas. One thing, I was doing a a blog looking at the the Christmas movies on. Love Actually is on, like, all the time. I mean, it just, it there's, at some point, there is a station that is showing Love Actually at all times. And there's also uh, things like uh, Last Chance Harvey, which is really cute, but saving Mr. Banks, Mary Poppins and Emma Thompson together at last. I mean, I, I, I... what is there? There's just just no question. I mean, there are so many other. I love Pride. I think it's absolutely wonderful. It's a Wonderful Life is on obviously all the time every Christmas, so we're kind of avoiding that and what Wizard of Oz because they're on hard rotation. But Saving Mr. Banks, I love that film. When can I see that? You can see it tonight at eight thirty p.m. on BBC Two, the finest of stations. I would either go for uh, Andrew One Dalmatians, which is Christmas Eve, uh, four twenty in the afternoon, animated or live. Oh, it's the original 1960 uh, animation. Uh, and I would also maybe consider just throwing in at the last minute Prisoner of Azkaban just because it's my favourite of the Harry Potter books and it's my favourite of the Harry Potter films. And that is uh, ten past four in the afternoon on Boxing Day on ITV1, by the way, Mark, if you're making a note of that. I am making a note of it. So thanks very much, Lee, for all those. What else is out? Is there something that we should uh, be taking yeah, notice of? So looking forward once again to um, New Year's Day, because we were talking about uh, Assassin's Creed, which opens on uh, New Year's Day, which is uh, November the 1st. So also looking ahead to uh, New Year's Day, we have A Monster Calls, which is the new film by J.A. Bayona, who made... Um, the orphanage, orphanata, which I really loved, and the impossible because you interviewed 
somebody about the impossible, didn't you? Um, the tsunami drama. I thought you'd done an interview for it, but I may be yes. I may be wrong. I almost certainly did. did so anyway, anyway, so this is a fairy tale in the best possible sense. It's adapted by it was Ewan McGregor. Ewan McGregor. Fine. Mm. Well done. Well remembered. Adapted by Patrick Ness from his uh, book, which was adapted from an original idea by Siobhan Dowd. And one of the things that everyone always says about fairy tales is fairy tales at their best are fantastical stories that help us deal with things that are completely real and down to earth. And they're particularly important at certain times of your life. When you're young, you know, they have... I I mean, I, you know, I always used to love fantasy and fairy tales. Guillermo del Toro says that his, you know, his entire worldview was formed by believing in monsters, by believing in, you know, fabulous creatures. And, of course, Bayona's first film, Orphanage, uh, Guillermo del Toro was very much a leading light uh, on it. And what the Orphanage did was, you know, it used genre filmmaking in a way that was absolutely rooted in tangible, real-life emotions, but it was, you know, using a sort of fantastical narrative. And that's what this does as well. So the story is about a troubled uh, adolescent uh, called Connor, who uh, isn't worried about a number of things. He's worried about the fact that his mother is ill and he's terrified about how her illness is going to work out. His father has gone across the Atlantic and he is scared of separation and isolation. He's considered weird at school and he is rightly frightened about being bullied. He is isolated, he is angry, he is convinced that he's going to end up living with his grandmother, which he doesn't want to do. And suddenly... He is visited by a walking tree, a tree monster played by Liam Neeson. And at first, this seems like a, you know, just like some weird, fabulous hallucination. But what happens is the tree says, I'm going to tell you a series of stories. And then at the end of the stories, you are going to tell me the story of your truth. So it sets itself up with this uh, fable like uh, a setup of storytelling, which of course is very, very much a part of, uh, you know, stories within stories of fairy tales. And then we see stories both through animation and through hearing the stories narrated. And gradually the distinction between reality and fantasy, between, you know, hard and fast, concrete, earthbound reality and imaginative fantasy starts to blur. Here's a clip. Tell me, Connor O'Malley, what shall I destroy next? What? Snap the chimney? The chimney. Next. Throw away their beds. Smash the furniture. Break the windows. Windows. Break them yourself. You get a sense from that of the sort of the fantastical nature of it and the fact that those sequences are, you know, full-blooded and very, very well realised. But also what makes it work in the way it does is that it is, as I said before, completely grounded in reality. And the very best sort of fairy tales are used to to address problems and to suggest ways of, you know, moving through them and of, you know, of healing and perhaps, you know, moving on beyond things which we're frightened of facing. And the whole film is really about facing your fears. And I thought it was 
really rather fabulous. I think Werner has a terrific sense of that magical realism, of making something which is completely, you know, fabulous, but also seems very tangible and very real. The way in which the animated sequences intersperse with the live-action sequences is beautifully done. There are some great performances, not least by um, Felicity Jones as the mum. It's funny because I saw this in the same week that we saw Star Wars. So there is she in one moment. And at the end of the interview that you did with Rogue One, uh, with Felicity Jones of Rogue One, you said at the end, and there's no time to talk about Monster Calls, which is a shame because I would have loved to have heard her talking about it. Obviously, there was so much to talk about with Star Wars. But, I mean, there is somebody who is at the top of their game being in these two very, very different movies, but both of which achieve what they set out to achieve in really sort of winning fashion. And the other thing I should say is that it, this is not just me. I've spoken to a number of people who had the same thing, that there, if you can get through a Monster Calls without floods of tears, then you are you're a tougher person than I am. I thought it had the, the, the grit and the heft of the impossible. I thought it had the imagination and the intelligence of the orphanage. I thought it was a really nimble and supple adaptation of a literary source that is put on screen in a way which makes complete sense and it had heart i mean it had real proper heart and it was very very moving and very very magical and very touching and take tissues because you are going to cry uh and helen in cambridge i have never cried reading a book more than I did a monster call. Okay, well, there we go. If Mark was not a blubbering wreck by the end of the film, something has gone awry <laughs> in the retelling and Merry Christmas. So, no, well, the, believe me, I, I, and I'm not just, I was talking to Wendy Eyde about this as well, and she said exactly the same thing. You know, people just, it, I mean, it's a, it's a really good, but it's a good cry. Julie, uh, on this email, uh, it's a beautiful film, but one that affected me greatly. I cried during the film and had to sit quietly for several minutes at the end to compose myself. However, on leaving the cinema, I fell apart again and sobbed in my husband's arms in the middle of the street. This more than 20 years after Connor's truth was, uh, was my truth, albeit that I was an adult at the time. Very well acted, particularly Lewis McDougall, who plays Connor. He's terrific. Only now, three weeks after watching the film, am I able to think about the film without losing my composure. So it's interesting. It sounds a bit like when we were talking about Arrival. It's a film that you come out and you want to talk about, and it's a film that stays yeah, with you. You really do, and you, and you want you want to think about it. You want to let it settle, and you want to, you know, it's... It is very, very moving, and it's 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 really quite remarkable. Well, Patrick Ness writes extraordinary uh, stories, yeah. so how fantastic that it's turned out to be such a such a good film, such a fine. Y- film. Y- you instantly will love it. You will absolutely love it. Are you sure? Y- yes, I am. I, I would I would bet anything that you right. which on it. You will absolutely love it. It's added it's added to the list. So it's eleven minutes to four. We have one more piece of music which we'll get to, chosen by one of our top celebs from the year. But what else might we go and see? Okay, so let's do a Silence, which is the new film by Martin Scorsese. Obviously, there's been an awful lot of uh, press coverage about this, and it's a major awards contender. Um, a film which he has been wanting to make for some time, ever since dating back to Last Temptation of Christ, uh, adaptation of Shisako Endo's historical novel from 1966, which has, of course, been filmed before. Um, So after the debauchery of Wolf of Wall Street, this is a story basically about deeper, more spiritual matters. Um, 17th century, uh, we have uh, two Portuguese priests, Father Rodriguez and Father Grupe, played by Andrew Garfield and Adam Driver, who become an army of two 
travelling to what they refer to as the ends of the earth, to Japan, where hidden Christians are being uh, persecuted, forced uh, to apostatize, to renounce their religion on pain of torture and death. Um, the young pastors who were sort of proud and impetuous refused to believe that their mentor, Father Ferreira, played by Liam Neeson, who has gone before him, reports have come back that he indeed has turned his back on his religion, that he has apostatized. And so they go out there sort of young and idealistic into this world that they don't really know anything about. And then the whole film becomes a very complicated debate about monotheism, about politics and religion, about faith and spirituality in the face of persecution and torture, about what gestures mean and what they don't mean, and about how one deals with those questions in the absence of a response from the Almighty in the silence of the title of God. Here's a clip. Don't speak to me. You have no right to speak to me. Oh, I do. Because you are just like me. You see Jesus in Gethsemane and believe your trial is the same as his. Those five in the pit are suffering too, just like Jesus. But they don't have your pride. They would never compare themselves to Jesus. Do you have the right to make them suffer? I heard the cries of suffering in this same cell. And I acted. You excuse yourself! You excuse yourself! That is the spirit of darkness! <sighs> and what would you do for them? Pray and get what in return? Only more suffering. And suffering only you can end. Oh. Not God! <laughs> I pray too, Rodriguez. It doesn't help. Go on. Pray. I pray with your eyes open. You said when you heard that voice, that sounds like Liam Neeson. And I said, that's why I said Liam Neeson. <laughs> but um, unless I said something else, but my brain definitely said Liam Neeson. So that is Liam Neeson, the second uh, second film that, that, that we're talking about this week. So, so this is an interesting case. I have to say that I am not entirely of the opinion that it's the masterpiece that some people think it is, although I think that there is much to like and much to admire about it. Um, it's clearly Scorsese's most personal work since, main, since Mean Streets. It's, as I said, it's a film which, which he describes as dealing with faith and doubt, weakness and the human condition. And so it's weighty subject matter and it's something which he's been trying to do for a long time and has had a very hard job getting to the screen. Um, I think the... The things that, that work about it are um, it's shot with uh, none of the sort of frenzied urgency that you think of uh, often with, you know, Scorsese's kinetic camera work. Uh, we are looking at these misty underworld vistas, Taiwan uh, doubling for Japan, a series of very sort of arresting devotional tableau. Um, and even the scenes of torture, which have been ref referred to by some people as sort of borderline torture porn, are somehow given a weird sense of serenity by the placidity of the camera, which actually, oddly and perversely, increases the sense of suffering. Um, in the lead roles, Garfield and Driver do solid work, although for my money, speaking English with a very slight Portuguese inflection is, a, it, 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 is not something which benefits the the dialogue that they are delivering, which is, you know, of a very sort of serious nature. And occasionally that felt to me like that wasn't quite working. Also, it's odd because what happens is that Adam Driver, with these very, very angular features, who's a very sort of interesting character, increasingly becomes sidelined. And um, Andrew Garfield's character, who has these delusions, as you heard in that uh, in that clip, that he basically sees himself as 
a Christ-like figure. At one point, he's looking in a river and he sees a reflection of a painting of Jesus looking back at him. And the whole film is about whether or not his devotion to his faith is a matter of pride or whether his devotion to his faith is a matter of faith. And there's a long discussion about what it actually means to believe that something that you believe is right in the absence of, you know, of anything else. There is also, during the film, quite explicit discussions about what it means to bring a, a religion or a theology or a thought system from one part of the world into another part of the world and whether or not that's, you know, that's imperialistic and whether or not it's... There's a lot of discussion which Neeson's character talking about it, Japan being a swamp in which Christianity will not take hold and Andrew Garfield saying absolutely not true, it can take hold, but it's to do with poisoning. Um, there are, however, some... Really, and there are some brilliant performances from the Japanese cast. Uh, Isoki uh, Kobuzaka, who's brilliant as a Kichijiro, who is this figure who is essentially the sort of the almost like the the Judas figure to the Rodriguez, played by uh, Andrew Garfield. Uh, Tadanobu Asano is fantastic as the foil, as the uh, the foil to the Inquisitor, who's played by Iseo Gata, who is really gives this magnificent performance in which, in one scene, he appears to physically deflate. I mean, it's a real sort of textbook piece of brilliant physical performance. So all those things are great, and all those things are in the film's favour. The problem is that, Alongside all of that, there are sections in which the firstly, I think the the Garfield driver stuff doesn't quite hang together with enough depth to carry the subject matter. Secondly, because of the way in which the thing plays out as a sort of theological political argument, there are inevitably sections which feel I mean it's a labor of love and it's loving, but it's also laborious and there you know it it is there you know you can admire the vistas and you can admire the intent you can the intensity you can feel dripping from it, but there are certain things about it as a drama as a piece of cinema that aren't the best of Scorsese. and uh, you know when Scorsese is on fire as a as a as a cinema director, almost no one can touch him. So I think that you know it's it's a very admirable project with some terrific some terrific performances, some performances that are okay, some problems with wrestling that material onto the screen, definitely some languorous moments, um, but substance and borne aloft by the director's faith in the subject matter, even when the film itself, I mean, like the like the two characters in the film. The film falters as it reaches for some some form of eternal truth, and it is a flawed film, much in the way that its central characters are flawed. Uh, does it need an Ennio Morricone? <laughs> yeah, kind of a mission kind of thing. No, in fact, funnily enough, there's almost no music at all, and what music there is is usually drowned out by whispered conversation or by the sounds of nature, and that actually itself becomes a very important part of the the story itself about whether. Um, the about whether the devotion to nature itself is inherently anti-Christian. And what's the conclusion? You'd have to see the film because oh, okay. I can't sum that up in a, you know... Uh, thank you very much. The indeed. conclusion is there's much to be said on both sides. So on the one hand this... On the one hand this, and on that. the other hand that. OK. So uh, thank you to everyone who's chosen uh, some music throughout uh, the programme and thank you for the contributions, uh, many of which obviously we didn't get to. Uh, because of uh, lack of time. But before we go, one more person wants to choose uh, some Christmas movie music. So here is a special message just for you from our old friend, Benedict Cumberpatch. Merry Christmas. Have a wonderful, wonderful time with your families and friends and a Happy New Year. My favourite Christmas song would be... Uh 
I've forgotten the name of it. It's New York Fairy Tale, the Pogue song. That's the one I love. I never remember the right title. Fairy Tale of New York. Fairy Tale of Some Christmas songs which you would turn off if they came onto your generic fruit-based device yeah. in July, but that isn't one of them. You might let that play. I know. I absolutely love that record. Although yesterday I was driving in my car and uh, we had a CD that had that record on it, and we put it on, and it, t- it was uh, three bars in. It was the Ronan Keating version. Now I've got nothing against Ronan Keating. No, but you wouldn't but... choose his version. No, no, really, would you? No, you no, want the no. original. That is badly chosen. And that song is in uh, P.S. I Love You and 2015's Run All Night, starring the aforementioned Liam Neeson. That's why it gets to be... He's in everything. Even though Benedict Cumberbatch couldn't actually remember the name of the song that he loved more than anything else. No, I know. That's great, isn't it? I think if Benedict Cumberbatch came on the show and punched me on behalf of... It was... That's all gone now, hasn't it? It was an absolute... We're all friends. So, what would you say? I mean, I know, I think I know what you're going to say, but what it, would you go along with putting as our movie of? The well, bear in mind that we're going to. There's still more to be re- reviewed in the podcast, but nothing is going to touch a monster calls. What's that noise you're making? I don't know. Well, pretty good, Mark. Yes, pretty good. I think. Oh, just pretty good. Yeah. Well, you are slightly hampered by me. <laughs> was I? Why? Do you? You're worried about the fact that you're that you're tired, aren't you? Well, you, you know, you know that that terrifying feeling when you're driving, and you just you can just feel it at the back of your head that it, that you're just going to lose concentration for a moment. Uh, yeah, so you think I better pull over and have a rest? Okay, fine. That yes. kind of feeling. Yeah. Well, there was a moment about ten minutes towards the end of the program when I think I closed my eyes. <laughs> Did you actually drop off? I think I might have dropped off. No! I might have done, but no one was looking at me. And I Was I talking about away. silence? Was yes. I saying that it was languorous or whatever, yes. languorous? Yes. But it was... But I didn't lose it. My, I wasn't on the steering wheel. Fortunately, we have a top engineering and production team who have their hands on the steering wheel. We're both passengers. And... Um, okay. And I would... Right. I just find that a worrying analogy. Yeah. I'm a bit like Jennifer Lawrence, really. I've been woken up too soon. <laughs> but, I, but here's the thing I didn't wake you up I sent you to sleep oh yeah oh yeah that's, so that analogy actually doesn't work very yeah. well. okay so do I now get a whole pass do I get a point when you're talking about something that I can fall asleep yeah I mean it was it's one of these it's a bit like oh <laughs> it's one of those <laughs> uh, anyway. it's the jump thing isn't it <laughs> thank, uh, Ollie Coxwig thank you very much indeed for your uh, email wish you a happy birthday um yeah, I reckon this. Uh, you you didn't have time to do one Why or two him? movies. Yeah, we also have a spoiler heavy uh, Rogue One Rogue One conversation, which we'll conclude with. Yeah, uh, but do you want to? What 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 didn't you have time to do? Okay, shall we do Why him? Why him? Yes. Is there a Why him? Mark? There is Why him? Question I don't know. Mark. Starring Brian Cranston, and it would better have been entitled Why Brian? 
why? So the story is Brian Cranston is the father of um, a girl at uh, college who goes uh, with his wife to visit their daughter at Christmas, only to learn that she has now taken up with a very, very annoying uh, tech billionaire who is apparently a genius and apparently very, very lovable, although he behaves as if he needs a really good slapping. And he is played by James Franco doing that needs a really good slapping performance that James Franco can do when he's just sort of, you know, off the leash wacky. And uh, Brian Cranston uh, absolutely hates this character because he's got tattoos and he speaks inappropriately and he swears and he, you know, walks around uh, inappropriately attired. And uh, I shared Brian Cranston's uh, deep loathing of him. And during the course of the movie, obviously... Uh, our feelings towards him change, except, oddly enough, mine didn't at all. He lives uh, in a mansion with King Michael Key, who looks after the estate, and is trained to attack his uh, his employer uh, at unexpected moments. You know, it's like that gag from the pink... Oh, don't let me explain it. The film will explain it for you. So glad we're doing this, Ned. I feel like I know you after everything that Steph's told me about you, but still not the same... <laughs> Nice work. Yeah. And your reactions are getting quicker. Wait, so you you just do this Pink Panther thing? Pink, Pink Panther. Pink Panther. Pink the Pink Panther from the Pink Panther movies. When Cato attacks Inspector Clouseau to keep him sharp. Are those really old? I, I never heard of it. I, I'm not familiar either, but it sounds absolutely charming. <laughs> Pink Panther. The movies? Mm-hmm. He Cato is his assistant. His uh houseboy. Houseboy? Well, it's a well, it sounds it's not racist. What? Well, the sound you can hear is of a joke being squeezed until every last drop of possible humour has come out. It's a snapping point. And you go, you know, that's a throwaway gag. And that must have lasted the best part of a couple of minutes. And the whole of film's like that. There are jokes about Japanese toilets shooting jets of water up your fundament. There are jokes about the family getting covered in moose urine. There are jokes about James Franco taking off his trousers and accidentally getting Mr Happy on uh, Skype or FaceTime or whatever it is. There are jokes about a dad accidentally being in the same room when his daughter and James Franco are in... You just think, oh, please, really? Re and... All the time I'm watching it, I'm thinking, okay, well, just James Franco does this. I mean, James Franco's done some interesting stuff. I really liked Interior Leather Bar, although that's, you know... You really like what? Interior Leather Bar, the film that James Franco made about the, the, the missing 40 minutes of cruising. Have you never seen that? No. No, I... I don't think I'm going to. You know the William Freakin film, okay? The William Freakin film, Cruising, was you know a lot of it, which which is set in these uh, you know the sort of heavy leather clubs uh, in New York. And uh, according to Freakin, when it first went, I can do this because it's a podcast. With time isn't an issue. When it first went to the well, censors, the MPAA, they kept they said yeah, you, you've got to cut all this stuff because this is like a triple X rated movie. And so Freakin said that he cut forty minutes out of the film. Years later, I think 2013, James Franco. And a fellow filmmaker decided to make a film called Interior Leather Bar, which reimagined what the 40 minutes that was cut out of cruising in order to get it the rating that it needed would be. And Friedkin tells this brilliant story that Franco rang him up at one point after the film had been finished, right? And Franco rang him up and said, uh, uh, Mr. Friedkin, you know the 40 minutes that's missing from Interior Leather Bar? Friedkin said, yeah. He said, what's in it? And Friedkin went, well, 
haven't you already made this film? And Franco went, yeah, but I just wanted to know. So anyway, but it's, it's quite an interesting, it's, it's an interesting, I mean, it's an indulgence, but it's an interesting indulgence. It's a bit eye-watering in places. Anyway, back to Why Him. I would rather watch Interior Leather Bar okay. than I would watch uh, Why Him. Uh, it's directed and co-written by John Hamburg, who has credits on the Fockers movies and the Zoolander movies. And frankly, this makes Zoolander 2 look like a vintage period Woody Allen. Um, it's It's depressing because all the time I was watching it, I just kept thinking, Brian Cranston. Brian Crescent, Rit, do you need to be doing this? Surely, surely there are, I mean, Trombo and, you know, Breaking Bad and even that weird kidnapping film that I quite liked. Why this? Uh-huh. Uh, and wasn't Jason in that one? In the weird kidnapping film? Yeah. No, you're thinking of a different weird kidnapping film. Yes, no, not that one. He was in that one. But there's another one. Um, also with, with Alice Anderson. Eve, with him and Alice Eve, which I'll, I'll, it'll be man looks thing up thing up on the internet. Dan Hall is seventeen and in Manchester. Yeah, I feel it's my duty to share with the church an uplifting piece of education related entertainment. As a student at a sixth form college, I experienced the weekly joy and enlightenment that is general studies. Did you have that? I did have general studies. Yeah, it's first thing on a Monday it was morning. Very general. I was walking to that. We had um, make your own homemade wine in general studies. <laughs> Yes, yeah, so uh, first thing on Monday morning, I was walking to the prefab box classroom, pessimistically wondering what obscure topic would be thrown out of the general studies random topic generator this week. However, it was a pleasant surprise to discover that, as it's the last week of term, we were, in fact, doing a Christmas quiz. Uh, this became an even more enjoyable thing as we got to a round of films of 2016. One of the films we had to guess was, in fact, one of Mark's favourites, Dirty Grandpa. Then my general studies teacher... Remarks, if any of you uh, watched Mark Kermode's 10 Worst Films of the Year so far video, you will have seen this film. I made eye contact with my teacher. Miss, do you listen to the... I get the nod of approval. I call out, hello to Jason. I get the response, hello to Jason. Is this heartwarming podcast-related bonding not just what Christmas is really all about? A big shout-out to Ms Tattersall and, of course, to Jason. It's just a nice it's little... Lovely. It's really yeah. nice. It, there in the high-pressured classroom situation, two people realise they listen to the same podcast. It's lovely, isn't it? It's very lovely. Sh- ship signalling the night. Um, Cold Comes the Night is the film that I was thinking of. The film that you're thinking of is Infiltrator, isn't it? Something like that. Because didn't Jason come on to talk about it? Yeah, even though he's... Like he's in it for like 10 seconds. seconds and they're like good. That. They're a good 10 seconds, but... Right. We have got to that point where we talk about the DVD... Of the week of, of the, the year. year. <laughs> oh, ho, 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 no, Christmas is the day after tomorrow, depending on when you're listening to this. It might be but there's still time maybe. for those last minute gifts and we're here to help. This week, we've collated a list of all the DVDs of the week and asked you to tell us what... Uh, what? You've asked you to what? Uh, yeah. <laughs> asked you to tell us who the DVD. Okay, do you want to start again? Thank you. Please start again. They're not starting again. No, they, they, now everyone will hear. This week we've collated a list of all the DVDs of the week and asked you to tell us who the DVD would be perfect for. For whom the DVD would That's be perfect? That's been my problem. I am out loud correcting your grammar. And I am not exactly fine. So I want one which says I am out louding correcting your grammar. Lee. It's DVD of, of the, the week, week of the, the year. year. 
The Gift Guy, Daniel Pacey, says Sicario would be perfect for the multiple mobile phone-wielding drug dealers that disrupt Simon's cinema visits. Correct. Warcraft would be perfect to give your, give to your worst enemy because it is so awful. Dave it's Mon- not. No, it's it not. I'm is, sorry. It's not. And you can all stop thinking that right now Dave or Monroe. there'll be no tea. Dave Munro, Zootropolis for the whole family because it's a perfect post-lunch, post-HRH movie. James King, but not that one. Greenman <laughs> would be perfect for Trekkies who want to see Chekhov versus Picard. Uh, Keith Fraser, Embrace of the Serpent, would be perfect for those relatives, friends, in-laws who like to tell you in excruciating detail about their spiritual eco-holidays, learning the simple wisdom of the noble ethnic people. Elliot Cohen, High Rise, can double as a Christmas and flat-warming present. No, it can't. Absolutely no, it can't. And Dave Pascoe, I would that it were Hail Caesar, a bit of biblical epic for Christmas, but... Lo and behold, what is our DVD of the week of the year? I'm going for the Blu-ray release of The Ninth Configuration. Ooh! Ooh, Which is a film from several years ago, and I'll tell you for why. The Ninth Configuration is one of my favourite movies ever. And it's one of those classic cases of a movie that's written and directed by William Peter Blatty, who also stars as Captain Frome. And uh, it was made after The Exorcist, but he started out as a comedy writer. And uh, he was very well respected for his comedy. In fact, he wrote Shot in the Dark, co-wrote Shot in the Dark, the Pink Panther movie, the best Pink Panther movie. And then he made this thing, The Ninth Configuration, which is based on a novel that he had written before The Exorcist turned him into a horror writer called Twinkle Twinkle Killer Kane. And it's... A brilliant film discussing the nature of God and religion, all played out with a group of inmates in a gothic castle being uh, sort of uh, ministered to by Stacey Keach, who is nominally the psychiatrist, but there is something weird going on. And it's immensely quotable. It has a fantastic score by Barry DeVorzen. It's really funny, really properly laugh-out-loud funny, really strange. It has the most extraordinary third act it's it's a genuine gem, and it was completely ignored when it first came out. Except Barry Norman, Barry Norman in the heyday of that program, yeah, loved it Pazza. and said that's a it's a it's a really really good film, and that was you know that was when I knew he was something special. Excellent. Well, you've been fabulous, and uh, we have one more special treat before we go, uh, and that is, of course, we got our big. Star Wars coming. Well, it's not that. Yes. We're just going to read out some stuff and say what happens in the movie. <laughs> this is uh, the, the theory being. I love the way that we've made that into something yeah. special. But oh, yeah. Reading out some stuff. Because m- the, most people who are really, really, really keen will have seen it by now. There'll be some people who are still waiting for yeah. later on in the holidays. Yeah. Uh, and we're telegraphing it quite appropriately. In fact, if you well, and me. It's in the telegraph. It's in the telegraph. It's, it's, and, like, a, it's like a cross promotion. That's right. So uh, if you and me saying it, isn't enough. Here's a special one minute and 17 seconds worth of stuff written in red. The spoilers are strong with this one. Spoilers do not concern me at all. No, I am your spoiler. I find your lack of spoilers disturbing. (laughs) How do you do a spoilertastic Rogue One special? 
You just do a spoilertastic Rogue One special. He was enjoying himself rather too much. Yeah, though, I think he? so. And that actually was James L. Jones. I mean, it's it was. He yeah, cost was a fortune. Actually... The reason that the rest of the show is done on a shoestring is that we paid everything to get James L. Jones to do that. Well, that was producer Simon, who likes to big his part up just a little bit. So I'm just going to read some stuff, and then okay. you can you can interrupt the way yeah. you do. And there are spoilers here. Yeah, this is just to be clear. Things that there happen. are spoilers in this thing. PC Simon Andrews. Is this a spoiler? Please allow me to offer a stern-voiced evening all from the police officer's portmanteau of the church. Just a brief input towards your impending spoilerific Rogue One discussion. Yeah. Whilst I was blown away by the CGI work that had been used... And I get to this point and I'm thinking, this is now going to be a bit like swimming in the nude when you're the only one. Okay, <laughs> it just feels... Even really... saying it out loud feels wrong. Yes. No, go on. CGI work that had been used to create Peter Cushing as... <gasps> you said it, you said it, you I said it. I felt attempting to recreate this trick for the Princess Leia cameo fell rather flat. Mm -hmm. The rendering was a lot less convincing and the use of a body double or some clever camera work would have been a lot more successful. Having said that, the closing three-minute chase sequence of the movie has me in a cold sweat uh, and I will watch it again. I will necessitate a further visit to the cinema to watch it then. Uh, thank you, PC, Simon. Um, Jacob uh, Hirschkorn. Thank you, Jacob. 13-year-olds. 13-year-old from Wetston. Wetston? The Tots and Wet? Eh? Well, I was up that way. The Tots and Wet. In fact, on the back of the first Madness album, it says thanks to the Tots and Wet. Rogue One is now not only my favourite Star Wars film, but my favourite film full stop. I have seen it twice and I enjoyed it intensely both times. This film has a completely new outlook on the Star Wars universe and really showed the galactic civil war in a light I'd never thought they would. You get to see that the rebels are not the angels, that they are portrayed in the original trilogy, and that Star Wars is actually set during a period of war. The thing that most surprised me in this film is that I was actually upset by the deaths of a character that I had only really known for less than two hours. Yeah. I was on the verge of tears when KTSO finally gave in to the stormtrooper blasts and when the grenade landed next to Bodhi and yeah. he's just had the look on his face that said, I have redeemed myself, I am ready for the inevitable. My favourite character was K2SO because he was just so funny throughout the film. He also turned out to be a caring and selfless partner. My favourite scene was probably Darth Vader's rampage at the end because it shows why he was so feared by everybody in a way that the originals never did. One more? Yes. And then you can talk. And then, well, then we can talk. Tom in Somerset. Good stuff. Unless for... you're falling asleep. Yes, good stuff, first of all. I can't fall asleep while I'm speaking. You know, I've done it. Okay. Good stuff, first of all. Acting was pretty darn solid. Great production, some beautiful shots, and Darth Vader was absolutely fantastic. However, sad to say, Rogue One is overall disappointment. Mm -hmm. Interesting point Mark, Mark, Mark makes about the, it being a war film. Yeah. A war film I could connect it to is Fury. Bad guys are terrible shots, blunt character development, and an over-the-top emotional and sentimental ending, plus lasers flying everywhere. Other areas where the film was a letdown for me, the, the fearsome... Is it AT-AT Walkers or AT-AT? Well, AT-AT, isn't it? AT-AT Walkers have to be one of my favourite vehicles from the original franchise, and to see them simply turn up in Rogue One and do little else apart from getting blown up like they were bicycles, is extremely extremely disappointing. And last but not least, the CGI actor resurrection. First time this was done, it was decent. But the second time, at the very end, it was absolutely awful. It stuck out like a sore thumb because you knew it was CGI, plus the character's appearance could not have been more unnecessary. OK, well, look, let's, let's start with the CGI characters. 
So the first time Peter Cushing turns round, um, I did go, <gasps> I hadn't, but I didn't know anything about it. And I didn't, I, I'd said that there had been some other critics who had mentioned it very, so I know there'd been mm-hmm. discussion on the internet. If you want to look that stuff up, that's fine. But I, my feeling was that in a review, you shouldn't mention it. What I said was, you know, that they use CGI to bring back some characters that you thought you'd never see again. But it didn't seem to me to be any point in saying which characters they were. So when Peter Cushing first turned around, I went, <gasps> you know, and I was thinking, is it like the Marlon Brando Superman thing where they're taking outtake footage of it? And then... Is it a lookalike? Is, well, no, I never thought it was a lookalike. I thought it, I mean, it looked so much like him. Then when he started talking, because the one the thing that the, the uncanny valley that they have it, they can't get mouths right, and the, the, it was the mouth that told you that it was you know that it was some simulacrum sim, sim, that it was not a real thing. Yeah, and then I found that distracting, and that then bothered me because every time we came back to that character, I became obsessed with. Um, with the way in which that character's mouth moved. Because it's, I mean, some other people think it's the eyes. I thought they were, they'd done all right with the eyes. It was the mouth. It's just something to do with the way in which the lips move. As far as the layer thing is concerned, at the end, I think that was, I mean, so I, I, I just about kind of got on with the Peter Cushing thing, although I did always find it distracting. But the layer thing at the end was honk. It was. You know, no, 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 no. Do you that, think it would have had more impact if, if they hadn't had Peter Cushing? Earlier, if they just got to the end and wow, there it is, bang! What if, they, if Peter Cushing if had, hadn't? If they hadn't done CGI, re- oh, you mean if so? You mean, sorry, you mean if Princess Leia had As, just it's been the only character? No, because I thought that the, it, because Princess Leia is only on screen for like three seconds, isn't she? Because she mm-hmm. says, you know, this is what are they giving them? They hope, but something with the the face, the rendering of the face just didn't look that good. I mean, I'm sure I, I don't even know how they've done it. I'm, I'm sure it's actors and you know stuff and so I know. You know, it's never it's never just what you think it is, but the it, it it struck a false note. I mean, I could have just done with seeing the back of her head, or I could have done with just hearing the voice from off screen. I didn't think you had to have the young layer on screen, and it, that did strike me as a false note. And having seen it twice, the second time round, I thought it was a really particularly since the great thing about the film is that it's been so able to fulfill because it's you know dirty dozen it's been able to 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 dispense with characters properly so you know riz ahmed's uh you know finally that scene is brilliant which if it was an ongoing saga which you had to go that that wouldn't happen you know it is a, a film in which sacrifice is seen as an end and in which you genuinely don't know going into it. I can feel, even as I'm doing this, I'm feeling it's wrong to be saying any of this. Yeah. Spoiler, 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 spoiler. When they when they started, you started realizing that wow, they are actually doing this. They are taking major characters and giving them ends which involve them not making it, as you would do if you were doing a standalone war movie. I thought that was really well done. I really really liked that. I'm feeling a little bit exposed. I know it's weird, isn't it? I actually feel like, I mean, it's funny because I went to see the film with my son. And uh, and afterwards we came out and we were very very specific about walking a long way away from the cinema before having any of these discussions. And then I found us even sitting down afterwards talking in slightly hushed tones, because you feel like you shouldn't be saying it out loud. Yeah, well that's a little bit silly if you're just talking after this. But anyway, no, I know it's a little bit silly, but it's the same. It's a, it's a similar. Fact. That's what I was saying. I was saying it because it was a little bit yes. silly. I was being yes. self-deprecating. Yes, I think that's fair enough. You're, you're tired and irritable. No, I'm not. I'm just. Um... 
<laughs> Tired and irritating. Are we still on? We are still on. Uh, well, I hope you enjoy your Christmas mug. I, do, I love my Christmas mug. I feel I, I feel pathetic that I, I my Christmas fan. I got you an empty gift pouch. I mean, really, it was one of the nicest things you could have got me. That was really very thoughtful of you guys. So next Friday, it's our best of 2016. Some of our favourite rev reviews and interviews. Are you reading this off the screen? No. I just wrote that down. Did it. you? So what's, uh, it, what's in the best of 2016? Oh, I mean, hang on a Are second. we in it? Let me just check. There's an awful lot of stomach noises going on over here. Charlie Kaufman and Duke Johnson. Really? They're in the best of the year? Yeah. Wow. Ironically. That's okay. Side three. Side, Side three, three is ironic. Hanksy, Stroopy, Fostery, and many. Amma? Is she in it? Amory. She's in. Uh, it's so chock full of surprises. Toby Jones, I think, might be in there somewhere. Well, Toby's always in. Yeah. yeah so you, you, couldn't, you couldn't do it without Toby. But anyway, it's going to be very good. Thank you very much, Steve, for listening. And we'll be back in a fortnight. So happy Christmas to you, Mark. I hope you have a lovely, 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 lovely time. And I hope you get to watch all those movies that you said that you were going to watch, but probably won't because you're washing up. Happy Christmas to you, Simon. Is How long is your mother's dog staying with you for? <laughs> like eternity. No, seriously, how long? Till Boxing Day. <laughs> I love dogs. I love dogs. I absolutely love dogs. Just not that one. I'm sure it'll be all right in the end. But we can't, didn't your, did your mum not wake up and, and deal with the dog? No. Because she's used to it. She's getting on a bit. Okay. Fine. Anyway, now it's time to go. Fine. I feel like I don't want to go because, I, you know, I feel like we've got, you know, we've got to the end of 2016-ish. Yeah, but look, and it's I... been such a rubbish year. I mean, not on this show. And obviously I'm only talking about other things. So... It's been, some would say, it's been quite a good year. Did you like my T-shirt then? I, it was promising. Yeah. A little bit hardcore for me. <laughs> uh, and that's it. Thank you very much, Steve, for listening. Thank you for downloading us every single week. And uh, it's been fun being a part of your uh, generic fruit-based device. Is I am so late. In, oh, yes, have you got to go and do Radio 2? Yes, I What have. are you playing on Radio 2? Exactly all the stuff that we've just been playing here. Are you, is that Wizard, what, Elton, But, but non-ironically. Shaky. Elton, Elton's, I was listening to this, Elton's, welcome to my Christmas. That's rubbish. That's really... Lots of them are rubbish. No, but that one's particularly rubbish. That really feels like, you know, it's, it was just like, I, I I need to build an extension on my house. I'll knock off a, welcome to, step into Christmas, step into Elton, really? No. No. Well, I have to go and do that. So, Mark, have a happy Christmas. Have a happy Christmas. Have a happy New Year. Have a happy New See Year. See you in a couple of weeks. Yeah, I'll see you in a couple of weeks. Get a lot of rest with that dog. I'm sending the dog to you, definitely. Doctor, doctor, my dog's got no nose. How's he smell? Awful. Oh, I've got a joke for you. Go on. Bearing in mind that mug. Go on. Oh, yes. Let's see if I can remember Go ahead. my ridiculously overtired state. Knock, knock. Who's there? Two. Two who? No, to, to whom. whom. Ha ha! Very good. What do we want? Prevarication. When do we want it? Wednesday. On digital and online. This is BBC Radio 5 Live. bbc.co.uk slash 5 Live.